you know, substitute big pharma, uh, big data, um, you know, you, you see your big agro business, you see the same kinds of things. And the, this idea, there is a need for a social license to operate, undoubtedly, and that's explored in the book, the way the oil companies tried to kind of recover situations like Shell had a a shocking brush with reputational meltdown when Ken Sarawiwa was um, hung. He was an Ogoni people um, leader and essentially the sort of the big beef between the Nigerian government and, and the breakaway Ogonis was that the Ogonis had the oil and they had to be broken and that um, attempt of liberation had to be stopped, but there was only one really large company operating in the Niger Delta whose oil was being uh, in danger of being um, expropriated by the Ogoni people, and that was Shell. So they had a, you know, they were tarnished very badly with the hanging of this um, activist, um, and then the Brent Spar. Um, platform that was they wanted to sink in the North Sea instead of towing it away and dismantling it on land. That did a lot of damage to them as well. So they needed a social license to operate. But my original point was that you know companies have got one legal duty, and that is to their shareholders. And we, we like, and they like to ascribe this idea that they have some commitment to. Um, a, a better world, say, but actually that is not what they are there for. That's not what they're constructed for. And selling oil to the Nazis and selling oil to the Royal Air Force in Britain might look utterly bizarre to us, but these are not, uh, we shouldn't ascribe some kind of human value to these companies. They're there to make money, and that's, and that's how they do it. And a lot of oil companies you can see are very, very happy in dictatorial regimes. In fact, I think I would go as far as to say they prefer dictatorial regimes to, dem to democratic ones because you just go to a couple of guys at the top and say, look, we need to build a pipeline. Can you remove these villages because they're in the way? And that will happen. In a democracy, it's a very, very messy business. So um, those are some of the things around uh, Shell and democracy. In terms of building um, Britain after the Second World War, I mean, it's true to say that the, probably the really big change from coal to oil was Winston Churchill when he decided that um, German battleships were faster than British ones in World War I, actually, and he took the decision that the Admiralty would uh, uh, use oil instead of coal in the ship. So that was a very, very important um, break between coal and oil. But in terms of rebuilding Britain, um, undoubtedly it was car first. And um, if you go to, if you've been to any of the northern cities, like I was born in Leeds in, in northern England, if you go to Leeds or Glasgow or Newcastle or Birmingham, you'll see these cities in the 1960s were just built for cars. And if that meant driving a huge motorway um, right the way through the city centre, destroying Edwardian buildings, then that was no problem. We would do this, and that happened. And it's an absolute tragedy, a lot of beautiful architecture, particularly in a, in a city like Glasgow, where my mum came from, 
uh, absolutely barbaric. And but that was the, the car economy. So yes, London was rebuilt um, around around oil, and so was the UK generally. And it was seen as very modern and very cool and. Um, you know, the, 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 we, we make a, a reference to the Beatles, um, baby, you can drive my car. Um, I want to be a famous star. I want to be a star on the screen. But you can be something in between. Baby, you can drive my car. And that was, that was it, kind of like, that was the height of modernity, you know. And, and you know, Ameri- American uh, music is kind of infused. How many album covers had cars on the front of it, ZZ Top, and but numerous ones. And this was all uh, cars equal... Um, Freedom of the road, freedom of the spirit, sex, girls, you know, the whole kind of thing. So, And that was very much promoted by um, the oil companies. It's worth saying, interestingly, that um, while the cities were being changed dramatically by the need for roads and therefore cars and therefore oil, which all for a purpose, um, the countryside was also being promoted. The most famous books when I was a child were uh, in my dad's car were the Shell um, nature books, which showed you sort of, you know, oh, you should drive out into the country because you'll see all these beautiful things. And so their nature books were very um, iconic. But it was all about, you know, use more petrol, get out of there. You know, and uh, there's one other thing that I just want to mention briefly for the listeners to look forward to reading about or, or thinking about when they read this book, but we're not going to have enough time to actually talk about it, is after World War II, um, the Labor Manifesto of 1945 called for the usage of a lot of these industries for the public good, which meant nationalizing different industries. And you mentioned how uh, the nationalization of the coal industry really was what drove the social democracy of Britain for decades. Uh, But they never did that with the oil industry. And it's interesting to think about, we're not going to have enough time to talk about it, but it's interesting to think about what would have happened in the UK had that industry been nationalized. But I want to turn to a different topic because we only have a little bit of time left, which is the topic of deindustrialization. Uh, so we're jumping way forward in, in the terms of the narrative of this story now, um, just due to time constraints. But one thing that's mentioned is that these areas that were particularly hurt by the collapse of the oil industry, uh, these are the areas that swung the hardest for Brexit. Elaborate. Um, so there's been quite a lot written about and uh, about the impact of deindustrialization um, on Britain and the, the, the left behind communities. I mean, it's the same that, that, that you see in sort of the coal, um, the closed coal mines in Pennsylvania or whatever, and, and, the, and the sort of um, Trump promises to bring back these industries, but undoubtedly, yes, a lot of people. I mean, the mining, um, the mine closures were uh, were the results of Margaret Thatcher. She used oil when we discovered instead of having to bring it from from colonial or near colonial countries like Iran, Iraq to Britain to refine and use in Britain. Um, when we discovered North Sea oil, um, there were two 
sort of different ways it could go. The Norwegians put it all into a, a sovereign wealth fund and built up what is now the biggest a trillion dollars worth of um, assets. Britain spent the money as soon as it came out of the North Sea. It was spent instantly, and that was um, certainly one of the uh, drives of Margaret Thatcher. She she closed down manufacturing industries. She shut down shipbuilding. She shut down. Um, the coal mines, heavily unionized um, um, sectors, which had been a danger to the Conservative Party. The miners had actually broken the, the, conser- the, the earlier Prime Minister, Ted Heath. He lost power because they went on strike, and Thatcher was determined to smash the unions, and she did that. She used the money from the North Sea to pay unemployment benefits, but she also used it to... Um, she could shut the mines because she kept refi- kept power plants running with oil. So I've taken us a bit away from, from your original deindustrialization. Okay. Yes, it's true to say that in, in say, the Thames estuary, um, that where there was the biggest petrochemical complex in Europe, um, and it's now pretty much all completely gone. In that area, there was the second highest Brexit vote in the country. And, and sure, there, there was a, there's a, these left-behind communities or the shipyards up in Sunderland, which used to um, provide, you know, a quarter of the world's fleet. And there's nothing. There is no shipbuilding going on there. There's very few jobs. And, they, again, they were big Brexit voters. So, yes, it's, well, it's a well-formed track that um, where industries contracted and fled, um, you, you, people were left without work and, and were frustrated and uh, saw, was used by populists like Boris Johnson as a, the Brexit argument was used as a kind of um, channel your discontent in this direction. It's all Brussels' fault. David, I'm gonna, you're going to like what I do here. So I see the next guest is waiting. Our next guest is environmental activist and former Green Party presidential candidate David Cobb. This next question that I'm going to ask to Terry, and it's going to be a relatively brief answer uh, just because of time constraints, will also serve as the first question for you to ask David Cobb because this question pertains to both of them. But give me 20 seconds in between to pitch the book again. Okay, so here's the final question for you, Terry. Yesterday, there was some pretty big... Uh, events that happened in the world of oil uh, in terms of Shell, Chevron. You know what? I'm, I'm going to talk about that. With We're going to, I have some sure. stuff on I, I know. I know that, David. So I, let, uh, let's wrap it up. And I, 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 there's a perspective that I want to get just very, very briefly. Promise it'll be brief. Okay. Okay. So the question is, Terry, we saw these big announcements that are not in favor of the oil industry for one of the first times ever. Uh, we have big, big rulings, big uh, decisions made that go against the oil industry. But yet, the share prices of these oil companies has not really gone down at all. You know, they went down 1% over the last 24 hours. But two of the three oil companies that had these decisions made against them are still up over the last month. Just briefly, why, why is it? Why hasn't, haven't the share prices plummeted after these pretty big decisions against the oil companies? Um, yeah, because basically uh, a lot of financial investors still, still aren't um, up with the gig. They, they don't realize that the, you know, the, the era of big oil is coming to an end, and they're in denial. A lot of 
activist shareholders are pushing very hard and demanding change on the boards of Exxon in terms of their strategy, particularly towards climate. Um, that legal cases against Shell have been re are really, really significant. I mean, there was there was a case. Have I got time, David? Wait, let's um, continue. I'm on a tight schedule today, and I would love okay. to have you come back if you don't mind. Okay. I'll do it another time. Yeah, it would be great to have you come back. And let me just okay. catch the book that okay. once more. Thank you. So, again, listeners, my guest was Terry McAllister, who's co-author with James Mary of the brand new book. I believe it came out a week ago today, Crude Britannia, How Oil uh, Shaped a Nation from Pluto Press. And here's just a hot tip for anybody who hasn't ordered something from Pluto before. Sign up for their newsletter. You get 50% off of your first order if you sign up for the newsletter. So find a few books from Pluto that you like. Sign up for the newsletter, and you'll, you'll save a bundle that way. Great. I, I apologize. I would love to have you come back next week and pick up this conversation. Henry, I'll see you Saturday night at yeah, 930 well. for COVID Town Squares, and I would be honored to have Terry come back and, and to continue this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you. Great. Well, David Cobb from the Green Party is about to join us. He ran for president on the Green Ticket a couple of years ago. And picking up on what Henry was just talking about, according to scientists, the planet Earth reaches the tipping point at temperatures 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And scientists in Great Britain this week say in the next five years, our planet will hit that level, at least temporarily, signaling that Earth has less time than we think. Once the planet is permanently 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the oceans will rise, flooding low-lying islands, coral reefs will be wiped out completely, as would the Antarctic ice sheet. Meanwhile, as uh, Henry was just pointing out, oil companies had a bad week with investor activists as well as courtrooms. Engine number one is an activist hedge fund that has invested in ExxonMobil. It says Exxon's, mobile, Exxon's profits are being affected by climate change and has to go look for alternative energy to sell other than fossil fuel. And this week, Wednesday, May 26, ExxonMobil shareholders approved at least two of the four board members engine number one nominated. This is incredible. The vote is still going on, which means more of engine number one's nominees may be appointed to sit on the ExxonMobil Board of Directors. It will be the first time Exxon ever had board members who were there to decarbonize ExxonMobil. BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, was behind three of these dissident candidates sitting on Exxon's board. That's BlackRock, not to be confused with Blackstone, which is evil. On Wednesday, a court in the Netherlands demanded that Royal Dutch Shell, Shell Oil, dramatically cut its emissions over the next decade. On the same day, 61% of Chevron shareholders voted against management, including Warren Buffett. He's part of Chevron management. 61% of Chevron shareholders voted to demand that the company 
begin cutting greenhouse emissions significantly. Capitalism has destroyed the planet. Can capitalism also save us? Joining us, David Cobb. He ran for president on the Green Party ticket. He is a member of the Green Party, and he joins us today from Humboldt, California. Warren Buffett owns Chevron. He's the oracle from Omaha, and he's the great American. Nobody knows that he's making a fortune off health insurance and Chevron, which is just one of the more evil companies. What do you, what do you say over green, the Green Party? Capitalism has destroyed this planet. Can capitalism save it? David, uh, I was with you all up until the question. Now, once again, you prove just when I was about to say, no, it's the good David after all. It's the bad David. because You're the good David. I'm the bad David. Indeed. And you just proved it at the end because the good David myself has to reframe your question. It's not... Yeah, the premise is correct. Capitalism as an economic system has destroyed the planet. It's not can capitalism save it. It is let's look at the the lawsuits that you just correctly addressed and uh, what we're seeing in shareholder activism because that landmark ruling came uh, at the same day that Shell's rivals are facing a pushback from investors as well. But wait, there's more. According to Bloomberg, I didn't even know this. I, I knew that there was a lot of litigation. I'm a lawyer by training, as you know. David Feldman, there are currently over 1,800 lawsuits related to climate change being fought in courtrooms all across the world. So this shell verdict is absolutely going to have a ripple effect, not just according, uh, across the EU, but globally. It's also important to remember that this individual lawsuit against Shell was brought by a local environmental group. But we also have to contextualize that earlier this year in January, a court of appeals uh, actually imposed a higher duty of care for Shell to prevent ongoing devastation in Nigeria. The German court uh, is in, uh, under Merkel uh, is, is pursuing the same kind of activity. So what I would tell you is this. We are seeing a seismic shift, truly, a sea change around... Well, yes, the sea change. Yes, that's... Yeah, unfortunately, but go ahead. I set you up. What am I going to do whenever a comic takes advantage of the softball and I just left well, hanging over the plate there? Of course you crushed it. Uh, but it wasn't intentional. But it really is what we're seeing here, uh, David Feldman, is both a legal strategy, a cultural shift, and investment strategies that are changing. So so the the reality is that uh, we in the Green Party were right. We were right about same-sex marriage. We were right about climate change. We were right about health care as a fundamental human right. And to be perfectly clear here, David, I I'm not interested in saying we were right, pat us on the head. I'm interested in saying let's save the planet and let's create a socially, racially just society because we are in a tipping point. And the tipping point, and I will take this moment to really say, this is an ecological crisis. It's not coming. It's here and getting worse. And it is an economic crisis. 
And the economic crisis can't be solved by capitalism because capitalism is the economic crisis because we are commodifying Mother Earth faster than she can replenish herself. So when you put industrialism next to robotics automation technology and the, the idea of unlimited growth on a finite planet, that's why we're creating this political crisis because here's where I want to land it. And I do want to engage you in this conversation because you're smart. I'm talking to me? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Follow me here, David. Don't don't prove me a liar. There's an ecological crisis. There is an economic crisis. And that's what's creating this political crisis. Because the political crisis is precisely the fact that the current political institutions not only can't solve the problem of racial injustice or environmental devastation, I'm saying... The political system can't even do what it's designed to do, which is basically maintain order. That's why fascism is emerging in this country and all across the world, including black and brown skinned fascists, right? Like, it is a, fascism is a way to organize society. It is a political economic system. It is based on a, a level of hypernationalism, to be sure. Uh, but it's not only white folks. Like, in other parts of the world, there are fascists emerging because they have a world, a, 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 a vision for the for their nation state and who is the we and who is the they. And it would be in the oil company's best interest for a fascist regime to take root in Nigeria, where, where there's oil. Where there's oil. Exactly right. And that's why I wanted to push here is to say these crises are creating opportunities as well, right? And I genuinely believe, David, that what we're seeing is in the next five to ten years, the ecological tipping point that, that we are nearing is also driving a tipping point where we're going to see a, a truly, like, society is going to be restructured, like, whether we like it or not. Because the old neoliberal order is literally failing before our eyes. I believe, and I think many other uh, folks are coming to to realize, there's either going to be some version of eco-socialism or some version of fascism. The neoliberal center is collapsing. The Joe Mansions of the world are dinosaurs. Uh, It's just not going to continue. So uh, that's why I work so hard with progressive Democrats and Greens and socialists and independents uh, and people who don't like to get involved in electoral politics at all to say the economic system is shifting. If we show, not just tell, but if we show people that these things like worker-owned cooperatives or community land trusts or public banking or participatory budgeting, if we could show them that there are ways to democratize the economy and get all of their needs met at the same time, people will flock to it. Okay, I agree with you 100%. I don't have your imagination. And so I'm a, I'm still a Democrat. I, I still believe in being the tumor within the party that metastasizes and kills off Pelosi and Biden and Clinton and 99%, uh, all of the Democratic Party pretty much except the squad, Maxine Waters, Ted Lieu and Bernie, that's about it. So I don't have your imagination or your courage yet to be a Green Party uh, member. 
So the problem with the new Green Deal, as I understand it, is the, the, the Green New Deal is saying, wait, wait, you can have it all. You can save the planet and create jobs and keep capitalism alive. I'm hearing from you that they can't inhabit the same space. And yet AOC, who we love, Bernie, who we love, Markey, who we love, are pitching the Green New Deal, saying you can have it all. You can save the planet and get rich doing it. Is that, I mean, that's a nice, that's a nice Band-Aid. That, that, I could see selling that to, to everybody in America, and then we all live happily ever after with union jobs. Gentlemen, rip that Band-Aid off. Ow! Couple of, couple of things i got to say. Number one, when you become a Green Party member, and you will, <laughs> I'll make the public pledge, I, David Cobb, will not say I told you so to David Feldman and the thousands and tens of thousands of people who will be joining him. That's a public promise. Okay. I won't say I told you so. I'll just say, welcome, let's get to work. And I'm glad that you brought up the Green New Deal because I think it's important that we recognize that there are really three Green New Deals. The first Green New Deal is the one that was proposed by the European Greens 15 years ago, proposed in the U.S. Uh, by Howie Hawkins in 2010 when he ran for governor, by Jill Stein when she ran for uh, president in 2012. And that Green New Deal actually uh, addresses the climate crisis and energy production and distribution models and the military-industrial complex, which is the U.S. military is the single biggest uh, cause of climate uh, uh, crisis, uh, and whoa, 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 whoa! Are you saying weapons are killing us? <laughs> Somebody should look into this. Number three. Uh, number three. Number three. Number three is that the real Green New Deal democratizes the economy. It actually says, like, if you're unemployed, you go to your not your unemployment office, but you would go to your local employment office for the right to have meaningful, productive work to engage in what sort of regenerative project has the community democratically said that they want to see worked on, right? And so it literally empowers the worker, it empowers the community, it restructures the economic system. So that's the real Green New Deal. The second Green New Deal is the AOC Bernie Sanders uh, Green New Deal, and it is fantastic on point number one. It absolutely covers fossil fuel use, uh, and I want to give like nothing but check marks on section one, right, uh, of the Green New Deal. But sadly, it is absent of any uh, vision of dismantling the military-industrial complex, taking on the U.S. empire and dismantling it, and it does not have the vision of democratizing the economy. So there's a lot of good stuff in the AOC Bernie Sanders Green New Deal, which I support, and there's not enough, so I'm lovingly but insistently pushing we need to go further. But wait, the third Green New Deal. You'll appreciate this. The third new Green New Deal is the Pelosi-backed Democratic Party hack Green New Deal. And here's my punchline, David Feldman. That Green New Deal is neither new, nor green, nor a deal. Right. Right? It's, it's a lie. It, 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 that one is terrible, and we've got to call it out. Right. Let's, let's review this. I, I, repetition is teaching. 
people say you're repetitive. Well, that's how you teach. So what are these three, these three new green new green new deals? What are the three green new deals? Let's do it again. So the first again, we'll do them really quickly, and I can yeah. drop a link and, and, and right. we can just talk about this sometime. But the, the first green new deal really is the the one that came out of Europe in uh, uh, 2008, the European Green Party and the Green Party of the United States. Uh, Jill Stein actually addressed it. And there's, a, there's an entire program that I could drop a link. Uh, you can share with your listeners and viewers. I know you have a very active uh, community of folks uh, who, who you're engaging. So I would encourage you all to take a look. Uh, the Green New Deal as presented by Howie Hawkins and Jill Stein. And this is the, the democratization of our economy. Correct. It includes the democratization of our economy. It also addresses uh, the U.S. empire and U.S. foreign policy that's driving so much of the horror show. And it includes the the use of fossil fuels and weaning us off of fossil fuels to sustainable alternative energy, right? That's why I say the real Green New Deal actually has three moving parts. There is fossil fuels, there's the U.S. military, and... Uh, there is democratizing the economy. The second Green New Deal is the AOC Bernie Sanders, and it does a fantastic job on weaning off of fossil fuels. It begins to touch on the democratizing the economy because they have added recently, relatively recently, the last year, uh, conversations around public banking, which is fantastic, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. It continues the illusion it continues the, the panacea that not only can you slave the planet, but that rich billionaires can continue to be billionaires. I just don't think that's possible. And then the third Green New Deal, and it's luckily dead on the vine. But do you remember when Pelosi actually pushed back against AOC and Bernie with their version? Look at it. It's pathetic. It's greenwashing at its worst. Right. And, it, and Pelosi needs to be called out on that. Yeah. And it, folks who are still in the Democratic Party need to hold her accountable. So you're saying that there are three issues that need to be tackled. One is obviously fossil fuels. Two, the military. The relationship between the military and the destruction of our planet not in terms of killing other people, but in terms of destroying the planet, which never hurt anybody. I mean, I can understand. No, I'm kidding about that. Uh, and then the, then the third thing we have. Viewers, did you see? Feldman literally realized he was about to go too far. Yes. Just like, with wow. you. He, he pulled himself back. With you. If I had a different guest, I would tell you that. I think, you know, we need three million prisoners in this country, and we're just fighting the wrong wars. I, I could, you know, we, I, I'm all for a, a, a civil war in this country. I'll tell you the people we should be fighting. And then, the, so let me just repeat, fossil fuel, the military, and the democratization of our economy. Those are your three goals. That's really clear. And, it's, and, you're, and what I love about this is you are stating up front what you want and what we have to achieve. The democratization of our economy is socialism. Yeah, so when you see, right. so let me ask you about this. The, uh, on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, which I, one of the co-hosts, and yes, I'm bragging, 
And yes, it's the greatest thing I've ever accomplished in my life. So let me just pause there and and bathe in that glory of getting to talk to Ralph Nader uh, for a half hour, an hour each week. Uh, we were talking about the you know 200 companies who come out in favor of democracy. You know, Coca-Cola. You know, Delta. We're against all these voting suppression laws. We believe in democracy, except in their own company. Shareholder revolts. There are people who are voting. A majority of shareholders will vote against a pay raise for a CEO. And the CEO will go, that's fine, but it's non-binding. I'm taking the money. So there's no democracy in a corporation, but they are chartered by the state if you own shares, you do have a vote. Pension funds, theoretically, you know, the Teamsters could buy. They have a, you know, I don't know, a couple billion dollars in their pension funds. You could buy the trucking companies that are screwing you on wages. So there is a potential for the democratization of our economy through capitalism. Shareholder rights. So, look, you, everything again, the, the, the mechanism that you touched upon for shareholder activism, uh, for, for using the current system, absolutely yes, those are, are real. And, David Feldman, I want to put another idea into, into your head. Maybe we'll come back and talk about it uh, and do a deep dive on it, because I'm really loving uh, our 30 minutes together. Uh, but listen, you know what else is available in our toolkit right now? Corporate charter revocation, right? Or a national <laughs> charter instead of Delaware. Or a national charter, but that would require new legislation. I'm actually telling you every state in the union right now has a corporate charter revocation uh, statute. And as you said, remember, corporations are created by the state. Right to get the incredible, incredible, valuable thing called uh, limited liability. Remember, that means they're limiting the legal liability and responsibility of this new entity that was created by the state legislative uh, pronouncement. Right? It is not some sort of free enterprise. Like that's a lie. Right? The the the, the, the corporate chartering process is a political decision. David, what I'm telling you is that there was, for the first hundred years of this country, obviously there were, pro like, you know, slavery and women were being subjugated, but the corporation as an artificial entity created by the state, let me give you the list of what was written into every single corporate charter. First, that it was a understood to be a privilege, not a right to get corporate charter. Secondly, you had to prove that you were serving the public interest. Let that sink in for a moment. Not the shareholders. Not the shareholders, the public interest to get the privilege of limited liability. You had to prove, that, assert and then prove that you were going to serve the public interest. And wait, there's more. You were only allowed to do the very limited thing that you had uh, applied to do, but... But wait, there's still even more. Every corporate charter was limited to five or ten years, and at the end of the five to ten years, you had to come back to the state legislature all over again and make your case again. That's democracy. And that so when people – hang on for one second. I love you, by the way. 
the democratization of our economy, if you drill down on this, you don't have to bring up socialism. You don't have to bring up Karl Marx. You can just bring up our effing constitution and say, make what we already have work for us. You just need to pass a couple of laws or reverse a couple of laws to create social, what is de facto socialism. Shareholder yeah. rights, get, you know, a national corporate charter. And let me just, I want to yeah. stay on this. You, you, there are three things that we have to fight for, according to you. And I love this. Get rid of fossil fuels, democratize our economy, which we can do using the current system we have without a violent revolution. And number two, the military, the military. If we use our military and destroyed the state of Delaware, where all these corporations are chartered, what do you think? We declare war on Delaware. We, we make Washington, D.C. a state and take statehood away from... The only reason Delaware exists is so DuPont can give everybody cancer and not get sued for it. Okay, the military in our limited time. Talk to me about the military. Why is the military so destructive to our planet? Listen, I, I'm going to drop this. Uh, can I drop into, uh, for everybody or just the panel here, panelists and attendees? Let me see. Yeah. I just dropped for you and everyone else. It's uh, from back in 2019. But the U.S. military consumes more hydrocarbons than most countries. It has a massive hidden impact. Well, it's only fair. That's the only reason we have a military is for those hydrocarbons. That's actually worth pointing. Like, remember General Smedley Butler, the most decorated Marine Marine in Marine Corps history, said war is a racket. Like, he, he said the mobsters in Chicago are chumps. The best they ever did was control a couple of precincts in Chicago. I was operating an international cartel. I wasn't there fighting for, uh, for America. I was fighting for the, the United Fruit Company. He was very clear that the empire was not a U.S. empire. This is really important, David. The empire is not an old nation-state empire. That's so 100 years ago. Currently, currently, it's a corporate empire. But what's disgusting to me is that that corporate empire is held up uh, by the U.S. government. It is... It, it, it is oiled by the blood, sweat, and tears of U.S. military service personnel, and it is pillaging and plundering and murdering mostly black and brown bodies all across the, the globe, all for the shareholders of these huge transnational corporations. It's disgusting to me. So if we were, like, and all it takes is a political movement that would tell the truth that we can democratize this economy, we can have a, uh, a society where there's enough for everybody if we just share and we're being willing to respect each other. The fascists are a problem, right? Principal conservatives are not the problem. It's the fascists who are the problem. It's the corporate elite who are the problem. And if we can just do straight talk to the American people I believe that there is a movement ready to happen to peacefully transition into a racially and socially just 
ecologically sustainable and democratic world order. Well, I love you. And will you come back next week? These are the three points. I'm going to repeat them. Get off fossil fuel. Address the military. Get rid of the military or pare it down to protecting scale it us. So, scale it so far down that it's really just defensive rather than offensive. Yeah. And the, the democratization of our economy, this is so valuable to me because we're so overwhelmed. Nobody speaks clearly. Nobody tells you what they want or even knows what they want. And so we get lost in the muck and have these utopian visions of how to solve the problems when you look at the Republicans, they don't have a utopia. They know exactly how to work the system and make Washington, D.C. work specifically and only for them. They'll say free market. They'll say capitalism. They'll say Ayn Rand, objectively, whatever. They don't, they'll say anything that they have to say. They'll claim any philosophy that they have to claim. But the truth is they're working the system that our founding fathers gave us. And these were horrible, white, sexist, racists who committed genocide. They happen to have given us one gift, and that is the Constitution. And if you work with it, we could destroy all the corporate power that's destroying our planet. But it, the, the easy way out is to dismiss what we already have and build anew. We don't have time to build anew. We have stuff already in place. We just have to seize it. We have to take it back. I, 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 see, I see your next guest is up. I want to uh, make sure to be respectful here. And what I'll say is this. I will come back next week. Uh, let me just double-check my calendar. But, but if I do, I want to make sure that we talk about concrete policies that the Solidarity Economy works on called non-reformist reforms pick up this thread because it is possible and it's happening now. Fantastic. David Cobb came to us tonight from Humboldt County in California, and he ran for president on the Green Party ticket, and he's – an attorney, but don't hold that against him. He's a good attorney. Thank you, David. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week. Well, let us now go to, I don't know, New York and, I don't know, places in New York or upstate Cape Cod. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Freudian psychoanalyst, joins us. And Ethan Hershenfeld, the noted son of Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, my mother and sister won't stop talking about Thug Thug Jew on YouTube. I have a feeling it's not that good. They just want to claw away at my self-esteem. What do you think, Dr. Hershenfeld? Is the special that good, or is my mother just trying to make me feel less than? I think your mother is trying to make you feel less than, and the special is so sensational that even you would have to acknowledge that if you would ever get off your ass and watch it. I know, I know. It's, it's sensational. I like it anywhere. It's, it's really funny and it's really smart because as you keep rubbing it in, 
We've got a Harvard-educated comedian here. What more could you want in life? What could I want? A, 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 a comedian who didn't go to Harvard who's funny. Right. I don't need... Uh, I'm, I'm don't, don't, don't trigger him. Let's not <laughs> Why do you have to bring that up? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I, it's, yeah. My mother and sister just keep talking about how much they love you. Well, I and love you too. Correct. Are either of them single? <laughs> As a matter of fact. And they, I was going to say they put out, but <laughs> that's, that would be inappropriate because... David Cobb is still watching. I'm trying to have him think that we're a, leg a legitimate operation here. Um, I'm in a podcast studio upstate New York. This this mic is not connected to my laptop, but I just thought it looked so professional. It does. I was here recording some voiceovers today for something else, and I'm using their Wi-Fi. Instead of driving back to New York and getting caught in traffic and missing your show, I just killed time in Hudson, New York, so that I could... Uh, well, I, David, I have to tell you, you saved me this pandemic. I don't know the next pandemic if you'll be useful at all, but this pandemic, doing this every Thursday night has been just incredible. Is this the kiss-off? Is this your saying goodbye? <laughs> this is it? So, I just felt like saying something nice. Uh, no, everybody everybody just loves the Hirschenfelds. I try to disabuse them. Uh, I, they don't know that you're not really father and son and that Dr. Hershenfeld is not an actual doctor. He uh, is an actor, but people don't need to know the truth. Can I tell you, uh, 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 I want to tell you something. Today when I recorded, I was actually doing um, a podcast. I can't give you all the details about it yet, but I got to do dialogue with an Oscar-winning actor. <laughs> so, go. I was in this scene. I can't talk about it yet, but uh, so I'll tell you about it as it comes to light. But that was very exciting. It was very, very fun. It's comedic. It's touching. And um, that was amazing. So, yeah, that was cool. Now, Dr. Hershenfeld, yeah. it's bad enough that I have to hear how great his special is. Yeah. Now he's just piling on, right? This is, this is just a hostile. David, it's no, it's not hostile. It's to make you tougher. That's what it's for. It's because you've got this, you know, soft underbelly that we are trying to toughen up. Go ahead, Ethan. Then I have a serious question. No, it's it's um, it's it's just uh, I'm just trying to trying to make everybody feel better because uh, coming out of the pandemic, you know, I haven't had a lot of a lot of acting work, so it was very exciting to have a day of it today. But I do want to tell you this about tomorrow. I have an audition. It's a shameful, it's an audition I'm, I'm ashamed of, but I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. Um, about a month ago, I auditioned for the role of a rabbi on the show uh, Hunters, in which Al Pacino plays a Nazi hunter. That's so, still on, right? That's actually on. It is. It is. And I auditioned for the role of a rabbi, and my scene would have been one-on-one -on -one with Pacino. It was me as a rabbi advising him about something. I didn't book it. Tomorrow they're having me come back to audition for the role of a Waffen-SS commander. Now, my question to you is, how bad do you have to do on a rabbi audition for them to say, you know, you know, I know, I know the role for this guy. Yeah, the perfect role for this guy. This rabbi was so bad. What? Waffen-SS. I mean... Uh, so it would be a flashback scene. 
Yeah, we have like comedic, what they call a comedic interlude. No, they, but no, but I, I would assume they're hunting. You you would play the, him as a younger. Right. They, that's what happens in the show. It, it's 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 of dubious value. I, I the show it has some things to its credit, great cast, etc. But I do could I am concerned that sometimes uh, any portrayal of those events can verge on or cross the line into what I call violence porn, where the audience is watching it for the wrong reason. I was once, I was sitting in a theater in Frankfurt, Germany, back in my singing days, watching Schindler's List, and I, this was no joke, it was not a crowded theater, but there was a moment when some Nazi guards are teasing some kids and making them dance before crossing the street, and I swear some people in the audience laughed. They laughed at the wrong moment. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a right time to laugh at Schindler's List? You knew it was the wrong moment. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I'm going to do the audition because um, I thought, you know, that scene where Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel go to meet the playwright and the producers. Mm-hmm. Played by Kenneth Mars, who plays him as a zany guy who's very devoted to the Fuhrer and very nostalgic about the Third Reich. Um, but he's insane. So it does. So I think my character, I'm going to have to portray him sort of as insane to make me feel okay about it. Now, do you worry, Dr. Hershenfeld? You know that when we sit down to have dinner, there's a gallows humor. Freud talks about this. Yes. The Holocaust. Yes is the third book of the Bible, I believe. I think you cannot discuss religion without discussing the Holocaust. It's Jesus on the cross, as far as I'm concerned. The Holocaust is the Third Testament. And yet, Jewish men, when they get together, make jokes about the Holocaust. And we laugh about the Holocaust. And I've tried to keep those jokes off this show because they're it's what you say in private to make each other laugh do you worry because I have begun to realize that laughing at the Holocaust while it is funny and I will never stop laughing at the Holocaust it eases a pain that should not be eased I think the important distinction is, are you laughing at the Holocaust, or are you laughing with Really, <laughs> <laughs> Dear son, if I may be so bold, he asked me the fucking question. <laughs> Go on. Go on. Okay. So I rarely feel comfortable with it with that, that humor. In about 1959, I was with three guys. One Jewish, the other two were Italian. And my Jewish friend told a joke. There's something about Fritz, Fritz and Hans were sitting around, and it was very cold. And Fritz said, Hans, the fire's di- dying down. Throw another Jew on the fire. 
the three of them thought this was very funny. Right. I did. I I was offended by it. I thought my friend, my Jewish friend, was just doing it to somehow curry favor with these other two guys. I I thought that fell completely flat, at least for me. However, Mel Brooks is a genius. But he's not making those jokes. He's not making those jokes, but he did a send-up of all that stuff. And I have to say, I laughed heartily. I loved the movie. Hang on for one second, Ethan. Yeah. Hold your thought, for please. Please. Because Freud wrote about Gallo's humor, and this is really important. There are jokes, and it really shines light on the stupidity of uh, comedy audiences who don't know the difference between Springtime for Hitler, this play from the imagination of a Nazi that's, you know, I was born in Düsseldorf, that is why they called me Wolf. This, you know, the Busby Berkeley dance numbers of the swastika, the over the, but they're never trivializing the Holocaust. There are no jokes about ovens and that he is making fun of the passion of the Nazis, not the plight of the the Jews. So when people say, well, Mel Brooks makes fun of the Holocaust. No, he doesn't. Oh, yeah. He makes fun of Hitler. And I think as we get further and further away from those events, you're probably going to see more and more of that humor. Which... As I told my kids, there's a time and a place for every type of joke. You, the, the secret is knowing where that time is and where that place is. And you know what? I'm beginning to realize there isn't a time and a place for every type of joke. It's lazy. Yeah. It's intellectually and morally lazy to even make those jokes. Go ahead, Ethan. Oh, I want to say, first okay, of all... Tell me a good Holocaust joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I want to say, we talked about this last week. The idea is, is that the quality of the joke determines how offensive it is. If the joke is very, very good, it gives you a lot more room to play with. Your your friend's quote-unquote joke about another piece of, you know, fuel on the fire, that's not acceptable in large part because it's just not funny. If it's very funny, then that actually gives you more room. But there is some math to it, at least. Yeah, there's something there. But I wanted to say that uh, I did this gig. I, I headlined a show on Saturday night at a synagogue, in, outdoors at a synagogue in New Jersey last Saturday night. It was my first... Uh, sorry, it's so sunny. I don't know what to do here. But anyway. Um, was it a sunny dog or a synagogue? It That's was, an uh, example of a bad joke. Just so... Just oh. so hang on for one second. Oh. Hang on, hang on. I came prepared. Wah, wah. Hang on. Oh, now. Thank you. I was hoping you had that sound effect. Yeah, in your I, all right. A lot of production value goes into this show. Um, so, so a few of the people who spoke before me thanked President Goldberg, who was the president of the synagogue. And I got up there and I began my step by saying, I also want to thank President Goldberg. Actually, I just want to say the words President Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> Because those are words you will never hear on the news. <laughs> right? Got a big laugh. Really? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that was fun. The other joke that came can out... I, can I just speak to that for a second? Yeah. Because people are appalled that my father used to say to me, you are never going to get elected president of the United States. Like, forget about it. It's not yeah. going to happen. You'll be lucky if you get to the, the school board in a town populated by... Now, is that wrong to tell a kid? So your mother, your sister, and your father were all in the conspiracy to tear you down. <laughs> it's amazing that you're even standing up to them. The other joke that occurred that was in the same um, universe of jokes was that I was talking to my friend this morning, and somehow the, the, the idea came up of um, in interest rates from the past, like an interest rate from, like, the 70s. And I, was, I made some joke about how... That being my Madeleine. Oh, like Marcel Proust, biting yeah, like into a... Proust, it was like a Jewish Proustian moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of offensive, actually. Yeah, yeah. And Marcel Proust was Jewish. Did you know that? Yeah, that's true. It was very offensive, but, but, uh, but an enjoyable joke. To have a very nostalgic thing about it. <laughs> Remember this interest rates. <laughs> He, by the way, maybe you've noticed this. He is very quick. I mean, he is so quick. Unbelievable. Your son. My son. Because he really he's brilliant. Can I tell a slightly dirty joke? Yeah, but let's just first talk about how brilliant your son is. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you an example. Yeah. Bless it. Um, I had a doctor's exam a few weeks ago. And the doctor told me that, he said, your prostate is smooth. So Ethan says, you mean he stuck his hand up your ass? I said, yeah. He said, did he at least buy you dinner? No. <laughs> Don't, that's not a, that's, that's not, I, I would never coin him that. No. I, I, I know, I know. No, it's very happy. That's an good idea. Yes. But your father money. doesn't know. Here's the that's thing. That's like grocery store humor. I know, that's but, you, but that's, it is, your father has not spent his life playing shitty nightclubs the way we right. have. That's, that's, a, that's a hack. That's a total But hack. he doesn't know. He's a, I know. I do it to make you laugh because it brings, brings me great pleasure to make you laugh. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever speak of that joke with any pride. Um, yeah, but I like the yeah, I like the setup of you have a smooth prostate. <laughs> smooth as a baby's prostate. Then you should have said it. you have a you have a smooth tongue. Okay. No, I didn't mean that. No, I didn't mean that way. I mean like you're a smooth talking guy. Your prostate is very smooth. It talked me out of uh, talked itself out of a parking ticket. I don't know what that means. Uh, a smooth pro So you're, the trick is not that the trick is to have a smooth prostate. The trick is to be really quick with your repartee. Well, what's your beauty secret? Why how, people always say when they see you, how do you have such a smooth prostate? Is that our goal as men to have smooth prostates? Uh, yes, it is. I didn't know about this because if wow. you have a tumor there, then that's yeah, something I, I really don't want to think about. Um, <laughs> By the way, can I plug a friend's You don't company? want to think about your father's prostate? No. So this is a friend's company. It's called Pigment Workroom. Look them up. Pigment Workroom in Puglia, in Italy. They do beautiful work. Very smooth. Smooth prostates, these guys. <laughs> Pigment Workroom. Thank you. 
I can. Can I compliment you? Who? You. Me? Sure. You. I'll take. <laughs> I've been I've been impressed lately. Like what you just said about the morality, and and what you said two weeks ago about the situation in the Middle East. I think you have a a firm moral sense that I never detected before. So either you're getting better or maybe my hearing is <laughs> I don't know. Thank you. That, that, I, whenever I get a compliment like that, I always want an FBI agent to walk in and just take my laptop and start confiscating all my uh, my electronic equipment and then I get arrested. Well, I, I look at comedy now and I see this, these cancel culture conversations that are so stupid and then you hear somebody uh, not Joe Rogan but Seth Rogan who said last week comedians need to let go of this cancel culture nonsense you're not getting canceled you just need to keep writing new jokes they're not, your jokes aren't getting laughs because they're stale the the audience this is basically what listen I, Seth I, Rogan I, is saying is the audiences have moved on and you're going, Oh, I'm being cancelled. No, you're not writing new jokes. I can't tell you how many times I have been in an audience or on the at a show watching another comedian tell a joke, it doesn't go well and they say, Oh, prostate's where prostate's where I crossed the line as if what they're saying is you're not willing to go with me to this very risky place. Right. No, it's just your joke wasn't that funny. Right. You hear a million comedians say that. Oh, I lost you at vomit? No, you lost me when you stopped being funny. Exactly. It has to be funny. That's right. It. Right. Yeah. Just yeah. because somebody's moaning or not laughing, yeah. it has nothing to do with politics. You're, right. you're lazy. Right. Write a new act. Times change. I mean, I... I anyway, go... Um, I wanted to just um, um, talk about, um, oh, the fact that, so uh, just not to, not, we don't have to dwell on this, but. Dwell, uh, dwell, go ahead and dwell. This Waffen-SS guy that I have to audition with, yeah. they actually called for him to speak English with a German accent, like in the 1940s or 50s movie. That You know that trope where it's an American, it's a Hollywood movie, so the, these German guys are speaking to each other in English, but with a German accent to signal that they're on the other team. Right. As opposed to in this day and age, you could just hire German accent, uh, German actors to speak in German. Right. It's very bizarre. What is that? Or is that not a topic worth discussing? Well, because then we'd have to read the subtitles. But Netflix is all about the subtitles, isn't it? Or, yeah, but or that's because nobody can hear anymore. Okay. I, I can't watch a movie because unless there's subtitles because my hearing and nobody pronounces anything right and there's construction outside yes yeah yeah so you seem excited about getting back into the 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 auditions and landing the parts i would i mean, i got to tell you it's, a, it's it's really like a breath of fresh air to do a gig today and to get I, it, it's been hard it's been my first uh, it's been a year of not a total year but i had one good or one or two good gigs in the middle but basically a year of unemployment. I was unemployed for the first time in my life. What do you like more, getting the job or doing the job? 
that's a, that's a thing. I thought about that a lot. I certainly, at a certain point with the opera, it was definitely getting the job, and that was an indication that I was a little bit over it. But I like both, with the, with the acting and with the comedy. With the comedy, it's doing the job more than the getting the job, because the jobs themselves normally aren't. Right. With stand-up, what, what, if I get a $25 booking from my mouth to God's ears, somebody goes, yeah, we'll pay your cab fare. It makes my week. I'm serious. Somebody, yeah. you know, somebody says they, they're paying my cab fare and there might be a meal. I'm a professional stand-up comic. To this day, it's still... But if I get a writing job, I go, oh, good, they want me and... But, you know, I'm going to go to the factory and, you know, touch the widgets. And But stand-up, is it's great to get the job and to do the job. A writing right. job, it's great to get the job. Uh, not so much fun doing the job, except um, for some rare exceptions. The amazing thing Saturday night was one of the comedians on the bill had messed up the date, didn't show. So Joe DeVito and I both had to do extra time. And then without us asking, without talking about it, the producer sent us extra dough. And what was this? Was this the synagogue? Yeah. The producer was my friend who produced the show for them. But that, that, was, that, was, that was a great That was great. We did a little extra time, got a little extra dough. It was, I just thought that was, that was very classy. Now, yeah. now, if you tell the audience that you're not Jewish at a synagogue, they laugh harder. Well, I don't know necessarily, but like... Well, my friend Becky Viduccio, who produced it, did some incredible jokes about that subject. And Joe DeVito, who's brilliant, he did some jokes about being an Italian guy at the synagogue. It was just, they were hilarious. So, right. Yeah. They're going to laugh harder at the I mean, night. They're going to laugh harder, but it's certainly a different, uh, it's a different situation. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Doc. Got... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I felt like some of my more Jewish jokes, which are, you know, part of my act, they got good laughs, but I, I, I didn't feel that sense of, like, hilarity, because they're, they're familiar with it. There is a sense. I think you're right that they're the... the uh... And the problem with Jewish jokes are they're, they're funny, but underneath there's a stereotype that makes them uncomfortable. Like, they're laughing, but they're not happy that they're laughing about it, and yet... They are there's happy that they're like There's a little bit of guilt in the laughter. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's right. It's interesting how much of comedy, how much hangs on stereotypes. There's so much of that. So much is about stereotypes and stereotyping and breaking the stereotype. There's just so much about that, about nationalities and about ethnicities and about what you expect. It's a... Uh, and, 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 and sexual norms and what the roles of the father and the mother, so that every joke is offensive. Everything is offensive. I guess there's... Uh, yeah, there's got to... I, guess I mean, Jerry good. Seinfeld... Ooh, yeah. Jerry Seinfeld is offensive because he's so out of touch with normal human beings. So what, what, what pisses him off is offensive. The least offensive comic is offensive just because... His minutia is privileged. I actually, you know, love and respect his comedy. But the last special, I watched the beginning, and he was complaining in the most misanthropic way about being out with friends and how much he doesn't like to be. And it was, I found that off-putting. 
And so I'm like, what? You know, I mean, he was just complaining about his friend or the people he's out with in a way that I felt like, well, you know, all right, well, so, so don't go out with people. You know, <laughs> you know, comedy, by the way, John Ross is here for a reason. So comedy changes. It has always changed. Audiences don't stay the same. People's tastes change. Right. And this, and I like what you said about blaming cancel culture. It has nothing to do with your politics. It has nothing to do with cancel culture. Tastes change. In the 60s, everybody wanted to hear comics who were neurotic and angry. And then Steve Martin and David Brenner came along and... So things change. John Ross is very excited. You you specifically requested, and I, I know that Dr. Hershenfeld checks out at the bottom of the hour, and I wanted to make sure that he heard that you had time with Dr. Hershenfeld because you're very... Hello, John. Hello, Dr. and Mr. E. Hershenfeld. It is a, a great pleasure and an honor to meet you. You um, are the hour. Do you yes. play for the A's? Uh, that's the... Um, no, he committed adultery. <laughs> so, and he, he lives in Maine, Nathaniel Horthor. Go ahead. The, the, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, I believe. Oh, but this is the 1973 hat, the one that Nolan Ryan wore. When he oh, Nolan Ryan, wow. Yeah. yeah, he was my favorite player. And I'll have you know, David, I'm, I'm missing a baseball game of mine tonight. We got rained out last night. They moved it to tonight, and I said I couldn't make it. I you know. chose this show over baseball? I know. And normally I wouldn't, but I felt like I'd put you through the ringer a little bit, saying that I needed to have this conversation with Ethan. So, you know. Yes. All humor, all humor has some degree of aggression in it. Otherwise, it's not funny. <laughs> right. Why isn't David's funny then? Because <laughs> all it is is aggression. Just aggression, I think. You need to and all aggression. All aggression has some humor in it, or else it isn't aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> we should have the aggressive police. We, we should that's police aggression. That's the commutative property of aggression. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I was watching. Oh, go ahead. Go, so let me, because we have limited time. You, John Ross, gentleman farmer, comedy writer, bon vivant, rock on tour. You wanted to tell Ethan something, other than how much you adore him and Dr. Hershenfeld. Well, I, I absolutely do. I we might have to hold for the train. The train runs right across my property. I don't know if you can hear the whistle a blowing, but um, anyway. Uh, and it ain't the peace train, I'll tell you right now. I'm, I'm actually a very big fan, Ethan, uh, of your comedy, your stand-up, but also on this show. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes, wow. I, I enjoy this segment with you. And, and Dr. Hershenfeld. Oh, thank you very much, John. I really appreciate that. I mean, as far as chopped liver goes, Dr. Hershenfeld is a pretty nice scoop of chopped liver. Guys, guys, let him talk. <laughs> let John talk. Can, I'm going to need you to mute yourself pretty soon, David. Um, so, um, I, well, and also I will just say that I, I feel a certain uh, kinship 
uh, like David will tell you, I am a misanthrope. I don't like a lot of people. I don't like there are people I I don't mind listening to them. I would never want to hang out with them. Ethan, I feel like you and I would be friends in the, and yet even though uh, I am a, was a stand up, made my living as a stand up, uh, did a lot of acting. I still feel more of a kinship with the doctor because we both share a frustration with David and his Nars Caden. <laughs> oh. What was the word you used? Nars Caden. Nars Nonsense. Child, childishness. Yes. The David's the lunacy and idiocy that he used from his mouth uh, frustrates the doctor and I a little bit. more. Ethan, you seem to be able to wade through it a little easier than, than I do. Um, so... I, I've I'm saved Ethan from friendship. Okay. I've spared him my friendship. He just comes on the show. He doesn't have to experience it. He doesn't get the calls yeah. that you get. I'm, I'm befriending all of you. Yes. Okay. So this is, to use another Yiddish word, this is going to be a very long bubba mindset. Uh, familiar for those of the, yeah. the audience? It's a grander story. It's going to go on and on, and you're not going to understand where it's going. Uh, but eventually, hopefully, we're going to bring it all around. Okay? Um, so, you know, Ethan, I have to assume that you, like me, don't believe in the universe. Right. That's sort of nonsense. Coincidences are coincidences. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, first I will just say... Um, I've been working on this writing project, and I wanted to reach out to uh, an old friend of mine, Kevin Pollack. Haven't spoken to Kevin in a couple of years, but I wanted to uh, – he was just right for one of the parts of this thing. I wanted to send it to him, see if maybe he could pass it along to the right people. My wife and I are sitting down to watch our program, our television show, and I said, she's got it queued up, ready to go. I go, could you just pause it one second? I want to send Kevin an email. Sit down. I bang out this email real quick. Okay, go ahead. Start it up. The show we're watching is Billions. You familiar yeah. with it? Well? Love it. Did you watch it? Love it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. So the episode starts, and who is on the screen to open the show who's never been on the show? We're in season three, right. like episode four. Kevin Pollack is playing wow. the father. Of, and I'm like, wow. Like, yeah. that's so weird. I kind of can't believe it, but, and then as soon as the show's over, I open my thing, there's Kevin going, yeah, sure, send it to me, blah, 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 haven't talked to you in a long time, great to hear from you. Wow, right? Yeah. Cut to, yeah. David um, calls me, I, for some reason I have become almost like the ombudsman of this show, where uh, I listen to it, and then um, my segment is basically going over all of the stupid things David has said during the show. And you know, the show is, you know, eight hours long. And we could do eight hours of just the switches. Yeah, it's a lot to catalog. And Frankenberger, Dan calls it a fizzle reel that we should put together. And, and I also, um, you know, some people have actual, uh, what's it called, where you can't eat gluten. Um, Allergies. Well, there's a, it, what's the word? Where the celiac. The celiac, yes. And you, if you have any gluten, the celiac lays down. You can't. But there are other people who have a sensitivity, like right, they, they're like they're celiac curious. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I I have a 
bit of a, a sensitivity to David and and his Irish Caden, and I had just kind of reached my limit. It, there was there was he called me to do the show, and I said, David, I need a break from your show and you. I've got to stop listening for a while. So he's like, okay, well, whenever you want to come back. I said, you know, there's so many things I want to listen to, like books on tape, and I'm wasting 16 hours of listening to this show. It's killing me. I've got to stop. So I started listening to this book on tape, and I'm really enjoying it. Now, this is, and I know the date, it's May 6th. I said, I looked, David's show comes up on my phone, and I see, oh, the Hershenfeld segment. You know what? I think I'm going to take a break from my book. And I'm going to listen to their segment because I always enjoy that. A little bit of levity. It's just perfect. May 6th, why do I remember that? Doctor? Oh, Freud's birthday. Freud's birthday. Yeah. So, so you'll remember what you were talking about. And you started talking about uh, the Electra complex and child molestation and what, you know, there was the famous case in the news and, and all of that. All that wonderful stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if Ethan, you're figuring out where this is going yet. No, I'm not. I'm 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 not good with clocks. <laughs> I I listen to the segment. I enjoy it very much. I go, okay, I'm back to work. Back to my book. I turn back on my audio book. This audio book is a new kind of audio book. Now, this author David doesn't like because he's a Harvard elitist. But this author is doing this book almost like a podcast, where if he has an interview, instead of just reading the book, he plays the interview. If there's something from the news, he plays the news. And he actually does reenactments. I hit, this is Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers. I turn off the interview with you two. I turn it on, Chapter 5, Case Study. It's about the Jerry Sandusky case. And this lawyer... Um, Laura Ditka, I believe was her name, is interviewing the assistant uh, coach. The assistant coach, Mike McQuarrie, and she says, "Did something strange happen to you?" And all of a sudden, it is Ethan Hershenfeld's voice, who I had just turned off, saying, "Yes, in fact, something strange did happen." <laughs> and I, I was, I was little. This is what's weird, John. I was just, so I'm here in Hudson, New York, recording something for those people. I saw Gladwell today, and then I was talking to the producers, and I literally was just now talking about that exact scene where the, the assistant coach, he hears this noise in the shower, and we were just talking about that. That's, that's very funny. Yeah. It's strange. Now, I have a question for you. Yeah. The, the, when they hired you, did they know that you... Are a stand-up comic? Or no. They did. Oh, he's breaking uh, up. Wait, say again, John. You broke up. You're. Oh, oh I'm, uh, did they know you're a stand-up comic? Um, maybe. Yeah. 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 I, why? No. Well, I might not have hired you for that part because there are certain people who are very funny, and it actually almost hurts if you know you're kind of waiting for Mike McQuarrie to drop and Ethan Hirschman go, lady, I don't know how many different times I can tell you. <laughs> you, know what I, um, you know what I'm saying? Did I freeze? No, yeah, I'm, I'm getting you. I'm getting you. Oh. Ethan looks, uh, has a furrowed brow. He looks frozen now. Now, no, now he's on side. I'm so sorry. I froze, but I heard, I got your point that, yeah, I think they did know I was stand up, but you know, I, 
I, because I, you know, it's a very dark subject, and of course, yeah. that as comics, that's what makes us laugh. And she's, you know, going over it. It's like, so you heard a slapping sound. Yeah. Now, was this like clapping, like yeah. applause? And I'm waiting for anything. Well, it might have been some applause at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I kept hearing Ethan doing jokes about it as I well, was. I, I am really flattered. I'm so flattered that that, hap that, that happened. That you noticed. It's, that's really exciting. His his, uh, his new. Um, I seem to be freezing. Not not no. You're doing good. No, you're not freezing. Okay, he has a new one called the Bomber. The Bomber Mafia. It's similarly. It's a book on tape that has the form of a podcast. It's Gladwell's new one, the Bomber Mafia. So that's, oh, yeah. so you're going to be in that as well? well? I'm not in that one, but I'm in something else. Revisionist History is his podcast, and that's what I was recording today. Uh, an episode of that. Oh, I'm excited for a new one. I, I guys, guys, I've got another uh, Zoom that I got to do, but could. Could we be on with John again? Yes, of course. Okay. I, I love listening to him. Okay? Great. Thank you. More than I love listening to you, David. Of course. Uh, Thank you, John. <laughs> all that a low bar. Uh, <laughs> and I, I should go and leave you guys to your thing. But uh, it's a pleasure talking I, to you. I really only wanted to tell that story. And the, the two people who I, th that I... The thing I miss about comedy, I don't really miss it very much. I mean, I, I left it a long time ago to start writing. But I did used to love to go on the road and meet somebody and hang out for a week. And yeah, yeah. Friendship, like, get forged. Yeah, I won't. Well, I'm going to come. I'll come say hello in California. Let's meet. I'm in up in Massachusetts. I'm oh, in me, me, me too. I'm in eastern Massachusetts, so we can meet midway. Okay. Very, yeah, well, you're welcome on my – I have a, a homestead. Okay. Or we can do the comics from the David Feldman show. We we've tried that before. Here's my email. There's my email address. Okay. Okay. In the chat. Thank you, Ethan. I love you. Thank you. I love you guys. Great. And, uh, so much fun. God bless. And okay. here's the ironic part, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. Isn't that incredible, Kevin Pollack? Doing what? That happens a lot, doesn't it? Isn't it? It's almost as though, don't you wonder if Apple or whoever you're, you know, iTunes, whoever, is listening to what you're listening to, and then they say, okay, we'll play. But you chose. Yes, I'm listening. The book I got from the library, it's an audio book from the library, so that has nothing to do with Apple. And your podcast, I, you know, had to scroll to the middle just to hear that one thing. And I hear it and then go right to that chapter. And honestly, it was 10 seconds later. And I hear the voice and I'm almost confused. Like, am I back to the podcast? Like, how is this? It was, it was just. So it's Malcolm Gladwell doing a podcast that's a hybrid book it's, on tape. It's his, it's his new book called Talking, uh, Talking to Strangers. And I very much enjoy it. Um, and instead of just sitting and reading the whole thing into a microphone, he does it kind of like a podcast where if there's audio of a press conference, you know, that he's talking about, he'll play it. And then he'll, he'll play actual courtroom things, but if they don't have it, sometimes they'll do a reenactment. I see. And it's just like a documentary, sort of, an audio documentary. It's an audio documentary, uh, but you can also just read the book, you know, like old-fashioned times. Yeah. Remember my bit? 
uh, didn't I have a books on tape bit? I did it on Prevention. Oh, there was something about how we listened to them and written them down. So they, um, uh, something like that. Oh, uh, books on paper. Hmm. Books on paper. I have a new... Uh, how many times have you listened to a book on tape and said, gee, I'd like to actually read that? For that passage. Yeah. Now, now you can with books on paper. This was actually funny, like, 30 years ago. Hey, let's talk about this show. You're the ombudsman. You uh, said... Huh? I have not really been listening. So you you stopped. I, I, I needed a little break. Right. I was driving you crazy. Yeah, when you started training Henry to talk like um, Don Rickles, Don Rickles I, I, I snapped. I just snapped. I, I said, why am I wasting my time? I like Henry. I want to hear I want to hear Henry do almost anything but try to do Don Rickles. Because it's Mike Rowe's bit, and we were trying to spawn a whole group of baby Don Rickles. Yeah, I didn't quite understand. And and it was also seemed insulting to Don Rickles. Like, anybody can do it. Well, that's what... Well, ah, okay. There's the train. I love that sound. I interviewed Ricky Lee Jones. I did listen to that. Because ah, you can't quit me. It's Brokeback Mountain. You cannot quit me. It was... Uh, it was good. I, I, I need to buy that book for my Oh, she's just amazing. And the train... You know, the train in the background. Does the train ever bother you? I can't imagine that train sound ever bothering you. No, it doesn't. Unless I'm on it. <laughs> if I, uh, um, I know it does not bother me, um, and our dog doesn't react to it, so which is, which is fine. If, I, if our dog went crazy every time, some people's dogs do when they hear it every time, bark. But she barks when, with after squirrels, which can drive us a little wacky. Yeah. So I was thinking, talking about the show. Okay. Talking about the show. And by the way, I agree with you about the Hershenfelds. Yes. It, it is perfection. It, it is a, a, a 30 minutes of the greatest car ride imaginable. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I'm 13 years old. Ethan and I are sitting in the back seat. And Dr. Hershenfeld is driving us to a Rangers game, and we're annoying him, but he's enjoying it. That's, that's what it feels like. In my mind, the doctor and Ethan are in the front seat, and you're in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the two people, like I used to love going on the road, and you know, sometimes you met people you didn't connect with at all. Right. Sometimes really connected with somebody, and I, I miss that, and I feel like when I listen to the show, I go, oh, I would have loved to have worked a week on the road somewhere with Ethan. I know. And the other person on the show, do you want to guess who it is, who I wish I know? DeVito Aaron Berg. Nope. Cyrus. Nope. A comedian? Yep. And we've become sort of friends, and... Jackie. I, uh, I'll give it away if I say that she and I on Twitter, she, like, loves all my jokes. Oh, DeVito. She, Joe, Joe DeVito. Laura House. Laura House. Of course. Laura and I have, like, the same sense of humor, and we just, and I, like, oh, we would have been such good friends if we had met on the road somewhere. Right, that's how I met Laura. And I met her in Austin, and I fell in love with because she has, she was born funny. Yeah. She yeah, just yeah. has these moves that cannot be taught in conversation. She'll just do one little turn of the head, and 
you, you're on the floor. She reminds me of Martin Short, actually. Oh, wow, that's high praise. Let me do tell us of you, of, and that is one, your friendship with her. How about my friendship with Martin Short? That's not a friendship. Yeah, that's... If I call him five times, he'll get back to me. You've gotten to work with him. I'm jealous of that a little bit. Can I tell you a funny, like, Martin Short? This is... Martin Short was just born funny. I I was visiting my mother and my sister two days ago, and I told them this story. So he was on the Bill Maher. When I was working on Real Time with Bill Maher, he did the show, and... I knew him, so he sat at the table with me and the other writers, and it was heaven, just pure heaven, Martin Short holding court with comedy writers. And he told, and this is just the this is just genius. So he's talking about Pacific Palisades, which I guess it's not, an incorporated city, so they have a ceremonial mayor, right? Oh, yeah. I think I remember that. Yeah. And he said that he just finished up his term as ceremonial mayor of Pacific Palisades, in which your only responsibility was to be a celebrity Uh and agree to be in the July 4th parade. That's it. I assumed it was a it was parade related. Yes, it's, it's all you have to do is show up on the July Fourth parade, and you're the mayor of Pacific Palisades. And he starts listing off the people who were the mayors, and he says Jerry Lewis was once the mayor of Pacific Palisades. And I said, Marty, what was Jerry Lewis like as mayor? And he says, tough but fair. <laughs> Now, if you picture him saying that, and there was no way he had that in his pocket, and you look at, there were about five comedy writers there, and their heads just went, because it was a miracle, that kind of joke, because you can't write that. Right. It was just a fucking miracle of a line. Tough but fair. I mean... And I'm I'm killing it because you you have to hear Marty say it. So you you can I I can picture the, you know with the sincerity the, the way he would say it. You know, like think for a second. And then go, That's fair. It's yeah. Plus, it's Jerry Lewis, <laughs> and and there's an element of truth to that because you can imagine the parade. He would have been tough on the parade. Well, he he was famously a bit of a douchebag, a lot of things. So it was perfect. That That is like for me, when you ask me, other than sex, what the happiest I am is when is like hearing that come out of the ether where it was it never existed before, and I and the endorphins, the I mean, it's heaven for me. So, and that's what being like being around Warren Thomas when we when we, when you and Warren were riffing and just making things anyway. You it looks like you have something to say. What if you were having sex with your girlfriend and you asked her how it was and she said tough but fair. <laughs> well, first of all, if I'm having sex, 
there's duct tape around my mouth and a ball gag. So I could, she couldn't... Tell everybody the greatest joke you've ever given me. My Your Viagra I, joke. It, it is... It is... <laughs> I don't know. If it, well, I don't, I don't know the list of jokes I've given you, but uh, that this is the was, joke. I haven't done stand up like on the road. Like I wanted when you gave me this joke, I called out. And you got to book me. I, I have to do. I have to do this joke. I, I don't even remember the setup. Something about like uh, I don't take medication for. Uh, I said it's humiliating. It's for Viagra. Yeah, I would never say it's humiliating. It's insulting to the woman you're having sex with. Hang on, honey. I think you're beautiful, but let me just go get this blue pill so I can so you can make me hard. I would never do that to a woman. So instead, what do you do? What do you use? I get some duct tape and a popsicle stick. Two popsicle sticks and some duct tape. I don't remember because it. it Two, it's oh, two, two for the the art. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Two popsicles and some duct tape. Two popsicles. <laughs> I love it because like, it's sanctimonious. Like I would never do that to a woman. Yeah, Split my cock. <laughs> That's the greatest joke you've ever. You've given me a lot of jokes. I love as a comedy writer. Yeah, I love being given jokes by other oh. people. But also g giving people jokes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I all not getting them stolen, giving, you know. You, you know what? Um, I almost gave away a joke that became sort of my my closer. I almost gave it away because I was watching some other comic. I remember I was at the Comedy Cellar. And she was in this bit. She's talking to God. And she says, God, and it's, it's something about, you know, like asking about Noah and the rain. Oh, right. But, and, but it went somewhere completely different. And afterwards, I walked up to her and I started to say, hey, here's what you should do. And then I went, no, no, I should do that. Right. Because it was like, it was too. It wasn't Let's like, go to the satellite map. Nope. And which Warren Thomas never let you forget. Because I, it used to be the, the way they made fun of you was the audience sucked. I went to the satellite map. Nothing. Yeah. Well, because that was just like back in the day. Because who was that weatherman on Channel 9 in New York? Who oh, was Lloyd like, Lindsay Young. Lloyd Lindsay Young, right? Or what was his name? Lloyd Lindsay Young. And it was looked like he had a, not to be cruel, but right. he, there was like something wrong with him. He seemed on the spectrum. I think you're allowed to say that. And he would, he was this boisterous. He was one of the first, like, crazy weathermen. Now right. they're all like that. But he was putting on a show back when weathermen used to be really boring. And he would right. be screaming and yelling. And then he would go, let's go. <laughs> and, 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 it, and people would laugh just at that. So uh -huh. I'm doing where I'm talking to God. And everybody knew about this guy. Then and I would, you know, oh God, you know, I believed you and I built this art, but tell me how much longer will these rains continue? Well, Noah, let's go, <laughs> and people would go berserk. Right. So if he did that, and I, I, I went to the map, I got nothing. <laughs>
that was that became the euphemism for it was a terrible crap. Right. You know, th there would be a joke like if you gave me that two popsicle joke right. twenty years ago. That would be it. Literally felt. And I don't want to say money in the bank, it, but it's like when when a joke, if somebody gave me a joke or I came up with a bit and I knew it was funny before I told it and it killed, it was like this thing, like I now have this, yeah. I, I, I have a house, I have a brick to build my house. It, it, and, and my mood, I'd be so happy for, you know, uh, for a day and then more. I want more, you know, well, a shark for those, jokes. But what those things did for me is it, as long as you had a couple of tent poles, like I know I've got this, you know, it usually had to be more than one line, but you know you have this chunk that's definitely going to work. You've done it a thousand times. People love it. And you got this other chunk here and you can separate them. Now, anything, if you something happens to you during the day, you go, oh, I'm going to tell a story about that. And I don't know if there's going to be any jokes. I don't know if it's going to be funny. But if I do it between those two things, I'm golden. Because right. I come, I ski off of that one, and I come in, I start telling the story. Maybe it'll be magic. Maybe it'll be fantastic. And, and then, but if it's not, I just jump onto that next yeah. thing, and there's just no worry. So, you know, we I would love this show to get bigger. You know, I opened for Devito in Princeton. Yeah. Was it three years ago or two years ago? And, you know, people were showing up from the yeah. podcast. Not a lot, but and I went, wow, imagine if I were actually more talented and could, <laughs> could actually fill rooms and do the – I thought that would be heaven, to be able to travel around and, you know, get the podcast up on its feet uh, and be able to – you know, Phil, not have to do generic comedy clubs, but, you know, hey, we're going to be at this theater and enough right. people show up to make it worth our while. How do we well, make that happen? Get a new host, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you host the show? So I, <laughs> uh, I need a guest host. I'll be like uh, Joey Bishop. Yeah. Uh, well, well, Feldman's hosting a show again. Go with yeah, yeah. Rogan. Here's the Deerfield news. Yes. Uh, uh so, by the uh, way, I would love just to hear news from Deerfield. Yes. Well, like, that could be like a, a monthly segment. Okay. Well, here's our big news. Um, there was a big... Um, Is it bad news? No, it's good news. Very oh, good. good news. There was a facility that was, it was called Channing Beat, and what they did, they employed a lot of people, and they made brochures. Any, if you went into a doctor's office... And, or a dentist's office, you know, those little stand, on the counter, there'd be a million brochures. And they printed all the brochures for everybody. It was a huge company. But over the years, nobody needs brochures anymore. So they ultimately went out of business just recently. Yeah. But the campus, this building, it is, it looks like a studio. It's like got rolling hills. It's got different buildings with atriums. And I was trying to tell my friends in L.A., it cost as much as, like, a house in L.A. It was, like, $5 million for this unbelievable property. And they said, you should, like, buy it, build, like, an animation studio. Right. It, it's so gorgeous and such a beautiful building. Well, we were waiting to see who was going to buy it. Treehouse Brewery, who has been mentioned on this show. Was that, uh, who, whose favorite beer was that? Bacon. Who? Well, David Bacon. David Bacon, yeah. 
but and and they're they're I, beer advocate, which is uh, kind of the beer rating system of Treehouse has three of the top ten beers in the world. Wow! <laughs> yeah, and they don't sell in stores, so you have to go to their brewery. And you have to like make like a minimum order of like sixty five bucks to even get anything. And it was way to they bought it. And now and they're gonna not only brew there and have like a tap, they're gonna have activities and um, festivals and music and live you know, live entertainment. So comedy and actually, they're starting to call the news. They're calling Deerfield Beerfield now. Wow. Um, because there are several breweries right locally on kind of the strip, starting down in East Hampton. There's a abandoned building and Fort Hill, and then you come up and there's Powder Hill, and now there's Treehouse, and then there's um, I forget there's Element, and there they, Brick and Feather, and then uh, Hitchcock. So there are already going to be people coming from all over the world to go on beer tours around here. Um, so I want to get weasel my way in and be kind of the comedy director and maybe we can do some the comics of david feldman show drama. yes and, and 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 people didn't we offer last time that people women could punch me wasn't that part of it yes yes there was a i think one woman i think we offered a i think a woman from smith wrote to me and said she was coming to the show to punch me Wow, well, it's a shame that didn't that didn't happen. Wow, good point. <laughs> it would have been it was me in a sundress. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that joke? Don't tell that joke. Don't, don't. There's some jokes that yeah we uh, yeah. Well, we have time to kill because I'm waiting on Professor Ben Burgess. So give me five more minutes of your time. How's your baseball game going? Good. I feel good. I, you know, the whole pandemic, I've been swimming five days a week, and uh, it it helped my arm quite a bit. And uh, I'm I'm swinging the bat well, and I'm throwing the ball well. I made a couple of. Uh, Let me ask you a stupid question. Go ahead. Swimming. Yeah. No, like I stopped swimming when the pandemic hit. Would you go into? You go to an indoor pool? Yeah. They, there was. Um, only four people allowed in the pool at once. You had to make your reservations like a week in advance. There was 15 minutes between each half hour. You got a half hour. So I would go in. I wouldn't see anybody. I'd walk through the, the whole place, go to the locker room, change, shower, go to the pool. And I, then I'd see people, the other three people, if, if it was full, which it always was, the other three people in the, you know, the whole pool room. And they'd close it down long enough to redo the air system. So the air is circulating. You pretty you jump in the pool and you swim. And I now have waterproof um, earphones, so I listen to you know something while I swim. I was on the David Feldman show, but people like you, like when I swim, I you know I spit water out. Yeah, the chlorine kills all that. There's nothing. Ask Henry. I don't think there's anything living in that water. And now with you're fully vaccinated. Oh, I don't believe in the vaccine, no. Yeah, me neither. No. I, <laughs> can't even joke about that now. I know. It's not even, it's not it's even funny. You can't. You, it's kind of it, 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 It's dangerous. I, I won't do those. Uh, yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, 
John Ross, what do you want to plug? Jeez. My ass. <laughs> <laughs> there. There you go. Okay. There you go. Mr. Mr. Highbrow. Now, now what you're going to say, now you all heard that, folks. You all heard what he said. Now, you're going to say, it's your show that made me do that. You dragged me down to your level. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't do that on Jake's show because no. he's highbrow. But I come on your show, I feel safe. I can make a disgusting joke like that. You're going to blame me for... for that'll, get, that'll get bleeped, though, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Would you like to debate Ben Burgess? Sure. Professor Ben Burgess joins us. John Ross, thank you. Do you know Ben Burgess? Uh, no, I, I know him from your show. That's all, the only way I know Ben. Uh, and also, another, a very intelligent guy who I don't know what he's doing on this show. <laughs> John, John has given up my show. <laughs> it's a catch-22. Like, you can only be so smart if you're on this show. Like, if you're not quite smart enough to escape this trap, then you, you're not that smart. Professor Ben Burgess joins us. John calls me up. Though I called him up. And he said, I love you, but I, I cannot listen to your show anymore. It, it's eight hours. I can't take it. You're in my head. You don't shut up. You're repetitive. You go on and on. You interrupt your guests. I, 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 need, to, I need to take a break. It's not, it's not us. It's you. It was a tough breakup. It's some of the grand theories of how all people are this way or all that kind of person, they always do this or some always looking for the grand unified theory as opposed to being able to see any gray. Well, uh, that, that drives me a little nuts. All right. John Ross, I like you. I like I, you very I, much. I, I, I love you. That's I good. like you. I'm going to give you a yeah. handshake. I always do that around my kids. I give them handshakes. Okay, I like you. All right. I like you unconditionally. Um, Thank right. you. I, I'm going to go. We'll talk soon. All right. Uh, I hope uh, you and Ben figure it out. Very good. Thank you. Maybe we should do the professors of the David Feldman Show, a live tour, instead of comedians. Professor Ben Burgess, host of Give Them an Argument, columnist for Jacobin. He has a new column out that we're going to talk about in a second. And he has a new book out called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. And uh, i got to admit, the Israel stuff, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm, uh, I have to say, there are ideas in my head that were unimaginable two weeks ago. And I am coming around. So it's very rare. Actually, I, I'm capable of change. Look at my underwear. Yeah. I've changed it twice this That's month. Yes. I, I, I'm beginning, as long as I can be guaranteed that Israel is, and we had Dr. Arnon Dagani on the show. He would make a great guest on your show. He mm -hmm teaches democracy in Israel. And, you know, we talked about whether or not Israel is safe. I said, is Israel safer now than it's ever been? Do you feel safer now than you've ever been in your life? He said, yes. 
And so, as you know, let me position myself as a, as an as an American Jew who was brainwashed or steeped in the history that of the Holocaust and the idea that Jews uh, need to be protected. Uh, if you can assure me that the Jews in Israel will be safe and feel safe, uh, then I'm open to anything. Then anything, then anything is on the table for me. But you have to assure me that there aren't going to be mass murder. And when people bring up, but what about the mass murder that took place? You know, your origin stories of Israel leave out the mass. Yes, I agree. You know, and there should be truth and reconciliation. But whatever you're proposing, will the Jews be safe and the Palestinians be safe? And I've come to realize that I don't have as much skin in this game as I thought I did. That that I'm an American, I'm Jewish, I believe in Israel, but you know, I if there's a two state solution or what, it doesn't really affect me as much as my emotions have betrayed. So. When I talk to people about this, I ask, what do you want? So I'm stating up front, uh, it doesn't matter what I want. I'm irrelevant. But if we're going to have a conversation about this, one state, two state, no state, who's safe? Who's dying? Is that reasonable? No, I think it's, uh, I have a really bad habit of uh, agreeing with people, but starting my answer with no. Uh, yeah. uh, and give them an argument. I think that's I think that's reasonable. I think that there are I think that out of the several questions that you should ask about whatever anyone wants to happen there, that should certainly be one of them. I would say that others of them include things like um, you know everybody has uh, you know democratic rights. Uh, is anybody going to be you know, a second-class citizen, you know, are people going to be able to, uh, you know, travel around, you know, different parts of the country in, their, you know, in a reasonable way. But, yes, certainly, you know, certainly, I mean, obviously, in human terms, anything like this, I mean, safety is always a question that you should ask. Right. Well, what is your top priority when it comes to Israel? I mean, do you go with Laszlo, Laszlo or Laszlo? Who is Victor? That's the third man. Oh, um, is it you're talking about the hierarchy of needs. I'm talking about Victor Laszlo's hierarchy of needs. Maslow, but I'm, not, I'm making a third man joke. Uh, <laughs> okay. So it's Maslow? One the other. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. So first is what? Retribution. First, you have to have retribution to be vindicated and proven right. Man cannot survive without well, justice. Right, and then once and then once you've been proven right, you know you can eat and you know have sex. <laughs> yeah. uh, that would be a funny, like the uh, Israeli hierarchy of needs. The hierarchy of needs of the Palestinians and the Jews. Uh, I would assume safety, right? Isn't security your first 
thing? Yes, not being sure, killed although, by the Israelis or the Palestinians? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, again, I, I mean, I think safety is certainly extremely important. I mean, I might be um, a little reluctant to uh, to say that, you know, that it always uh, it always trumps absolutely everything else because, you know, that's that sounds to me a little bit like what, you know, a certain kind of you know, law and order conservative might say, and, you know, talking about policing that, you know, that you, you have to, you know, you have to clamp down on crime no matter what, you know, because cause physical safety, you know, trumps, uh, trumps everything. But, you know, but regardless of how exactly to rank things, I mean, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly very important. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's, that's definitely not where I'm going to push back. Right. And so Yitzhak Rabin, who, through the midst of time after his assassination, got turned into somebody who he may not have been. I think his nickname among the Palestinians was the Bone Crusher. Right. He was not particularly nice during sure. the Intifada, but he came around to negotiating. You know, he you negotiate with your enemy, not yeah. your ally, and he sat down and was responsible partly for the Oslo Accords, as was... Yasser Arafat, and they, no, this was Yitzhak Rabin, recognized the PLO as a legitimate political arm of the Palestinians as opposed to a terrorist organization, and he paid a price for this. I think it was in 95 he was assassinated by a Netanyahu supporter. I know that at the funeral, Rabin's wife turned to Netanyahu, the current prime minister, I think her name was Leah Rabin, and said, you killed him at the funeral. You killed my husband. Mm -hmm. And he's now the prime minister of Israel. There were, leading up to the Oslo Accords, there I don't know, like 12 Jews getting killed each month by Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And he realized, well, we have to negotiate with these people. Mm -hmm. We have to form a two-state solution, but they never really wanted a two-state solution, did they, the Jews? Well, I mean, I would, I mean, it might be pedantic, but, you know, what else am I here for? So uh, I'll, uh, I'll just say that I don't, I'm not personally comfortable with, uh, with talking in terms of these giant essentialized ethnic categories, you know, what, you know, the Jews, you know, don't want anything. Right. What's, what's right. that? That's, you know, David Feldman, Yitzhak Rabin, my grandmother, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty broad category made up of human beings with all sorts of... So we ideas. thought, like, so it's safe to say some people thought there could be a two-state solution or we'll get around to a two-state solution if there's enough peace and cooperation. Yeah. Right. They weren't... Maybe we'll see. We're, we, well, you know. so, 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 so what I would say is, if what we're talking about is the Israeli government, then I would point out that um, that throughout the entire Oslo period, you know, there were still settlements, you know, being built on the territory that allegedly would would eventually become, you know, a uh, a Palestinian state, and and that's very that's a very hard thing to undo. Um, you know, I mean, I know that there were, you know, small numbers of, of settlers in, in Gaza, but I think really a tiny number who were ever there. And also, you know, Sinai, which is the other case where their settlers were taken out. But, you know, again, I think those are very small numbers. Those are very shallow routes compared to, 
you know, hundreds of thousands of people in cities that in some cases have been legally recognized for, you know, like several decades now, uh, that, that's, a, that's a very difficult thing to, uh, to, to undo uh, when, you know, when it's been done, which is one reason why, you know, you might question whether uh, the, the realisticness, you know, the practicality of, uh, of partition in the country at this point. Uh, you know, and, and then you could also, of course, question the, the justice of it, which is the main thing that we were arguing about for the last, I don't know, couple of weeks. Yeah. What do you think? So we delve pretty deeply into this, mm-hmm. and we're going to continue. I, I just don't want to do this every seven years when Hamas and Israel go at it. I, I want to mm-hmm. stay on this. What do you know now that you didn't know before this war between Hamas and Israel. What, what, what have you concluded that you didn't know a month ago? Well, I'm not actually open to sanctions against it. I could, and I could see economic sanctions against Israel until they deal with Gaza. Yeah, I mean, I guess the reason I have a hard time with the idea that. Um, that there's something big, you know, that, that we all should have learned from this is just that um, I don't know what it is that we're supposed to have learned from this. But I'm asking what you learned. It was there any? Or you didn't, so you didn't learn anything. You, you well, did nothing well, change. I, I, mean, I, I mean, what I was saying is that is that it seems like the script that's played out, you know, the last couple few weeks is very much like a script that we've seen play out. Um. You know, a good number of times in uh, in, in the last uh, you know in the last ten years uh, that you know that it, it seems like uh, you know what it was it called Operation Cast Lead uh, you know it, like and and several other things like this that the that there's there's some sort of pattern of uh, of, of provocations uh, they, and. You know that there there are things like what happened in East Jerusalem. You know that happened. That uh, that the Hamas will fire rockets from Gaza. That that happened. That then there will be you know that there will be heavy bombing and you know possibly even ground incursion. Uh, you know this is all you know this has all happened before. Uh, and and so I guess it's not that it's not that my views on this haven't shifted. It's just that they that shift happened a while ago uh, and. And right now, I, I mostly feel like I'm, I'm uh, you know, as 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 flippant as this might sound when we're talking about like events that are this, uh, you know, that are this horrible in human terms uh, as as what's happening. You know, I, I I do feel a little bit right now like I'm watching reruns. Right, right. Well, how have you shifted over the? Because I am shifting. I, I, I've yeah. noticed a a a palpable. In, internal shift when I yeah. look at because I'm learning more about what Jews in Israel think and a lot of them agree with you and uh, you know uh, my sister's been listening to what is a clubhouse there's been some amazing conversations going on between Palestinians in Israel and Jews in Israel talking on this app called Clubhouse, and the moderators are spectacular, she says. And once you get, especially the women talking, Palestinian women talking with the Palestinian Jews, 
there's hope. Suddenly you go, oh, wait, we can... Like I, my sister was saying, the, the, the Jewish women, she was listening to two women who serve in the, in the Knesset, in the parliament. One is Jewish, one is Palestinian, and they stand next to each other. Like, we can do this. We can, we can actually live together. Yeah. Uh, but what, what did you at one time think? Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what, I, what I thought at, at one time, like, I'll, I'll, and I can be pretty specific about this, I mean, what, what, I, what I thought, like, um, in, the, uh, in the early 2000s, um, you know, which is, you know, is, is I, would, I would read, uh, you know, took a magazine, I'd read Michael Lerner, and, uh, and, and I, I thought, you know, that, uh, that a, that, you know, I, I had the sort of liberal Zionist, uh, you know, two states, uh, two state position, and I, I mean, I think it was, I think it was probably uh, a little bit of a gradual process of, you know, of, of coming out of that, you know, and and some of that had to do with, you know, previous versions of the same kinds of things that, um, you know, that that we've been seeing, but it, it just got to a point where. I felt like I wasn't applying the same standards in this case that I would apply everywhere else. And people would say you're applying a standard to Israel that you don't apply to anywhere else. That's what yeah, like, like, like Netanyahu like, would say. Why are, you, why are you holding Israel to well, that's the standards you, you won't even hold to the United States? Yeah, well, that's what he would say, but, but he would be wrong. I think it's just the opposite. I think that like people who have... That, that sort of combination of views that's sometimes called PEP, you know, progressive except for Palestine, uh, are, are actually applying uh, a lower standard in the uh, Israeli case than they apply everywhere else uh, in the world. And, and it particularly, you know, so I mean, I, I, certainly in my case, it struck me that, um, that the sort of views that I would have on, on other structurally parallel conflicts like, like Northern Ireland or other things like that, you know, were, you know, were just different from, you know, from what I was assuming here. Uh, and that given that, you know, given that as a leftist, my, my views everywhere else uh, would be that uh, you should have absolute equality between uh, all citizens of a state, that, the, you know, that you should, that you would absolutely never think that it was a legitimate goal of state policy that, that uh, you have a certain ethnic group, uh, you know, be a permanent majority of that state. I mean, like that idea would be utterly abhorrent to me in the United States or anywhere else uh, that, you know, that you could do things like, you know, certainly that would violate other people's rights to, to guarantee that, you know, that the ethnic balance of a state, you know, stay the uh, stay the same forever, which is which is what we're talking about here. There. Okay, and, and so there, and there's a little part of me, yeah, sure. uh, that that believes this, a very tiny part. In the past, I might have believed more of this. What I'm about to say, sure. Why? What is your obsession with Israel in the Middle East? Granted, this is this is the argument that you would sure. hear, and a little part of me. Uh, has been trained to say this. Yeah. Why aren't you worried about the Houthis in Yemen? Why aren't what? Where is the vitriol directed towards the Saudis for creating this humanitarian crisis of cholera in Yemen? Close yeah. to a million, two million uh, Yemenis are are dying in 
in Yemen because of our weapons? Or where's your concern for the plight of the 250,000 Palestinians who won't be absorbed into Lebanon or the, the, who are, who are treated as second-class citizens in Jordan? Like, why are you so obsessed with Israel? Sure. Well, I would say, first of all, you anti-Semitic prick. I mean, that's what is, but there is, you know, when you're talking to, you're talking to people where the Holocaust is still fresh in the memory, there, there is people, the Jews do wonder, well, why are you so fixated on the Palestinians instead of your own country's problem with Native Americans and blacks? Well, I mean, I I think I probably spent a lot more time thinking about, um, you know, racial oppression in the United States than I have started thinking about Israel and Palestine. Uh, But, um, you know, I mean, as far as some of the rest of that, I I would say, um, you know, as far as, well, Palestinians in Lebanon, I'd say that the, uh, if the question is Palestinians being mistreated in Lebanon, I'm against that. But as far as being absorbed into Lebanon, I'd say that that should be up to the Palestinians if uh, if what they want to do. Well, they're not given citizenship. They're they're, they're kept in refugee camps. so that's bad, right? But I then like I, I just I was just maybe I'm making too much of the word absorbed, you know. But I think if I think well, why can't they, Lebanon make them citizens? Give you them know, sure. Uh, well, they should, but also Israel should. That that's, that's 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 not like the one is not a solution to the other. If what somebody wants is to return home to the uh, to the country that they're ethnically cleansed from. Now I'm going to argue with you, and, and, and I don't mean it, but now you, you tricked me into. They have an absolute legal and moral right to do that. Uh, they should also be given citizenship where they are, but that's a separate issue. The one has nothing to do with the other, um, and and I don't I don't buy, and none of us should pretend to buy that the only reason that people want to go back to the place that they or their parents or grandparents were driven out of uh, is uh, is that they haven't gotten a good enough deal somewhere else. Uh, well, I mean, did well, let me ask you this question and again? Uh, but I, I do want okay, to answer, right. answer your first question though. Okay. Right? Uh, so I'm just arguing for the sake of arguing, okay? Because you're the host. Sure, sure, an sure, sure. Uh, so, so I'd, I'd say, uh, I mean, I, I am, um, you know, very, uh, you know, very much concerned about the, uh, you know, the Saudi, uh, the Saudi war in, uh, in in Yemen. You know that uh, that I have, I've, you know, that I've certainly spent. Um, Which America profits off of? Yes, America profits off of, uh, and uh, I would actually be, given everything I know about the Middle East, by the way, I'd be, I'd be very shocked if there was no level of Israeli security cooperation in, in that, right? But and more, yeah, I mean, significantly more Yemenis are being slaughtered sure. by Saudi but Arabia. They, but they, sure, and they, um, and I was very happy when, when Bernie Sanders, you know, led the, uh, uh, the successful effort, although not successful enough to override the presidential veto to you know to stop that from happening. Uh, but we are, and Biden is no longer selling arms. To yeah, Biden is. Uh, it's a little. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think there's. I think if you read the fine print, it's a little ambiguous. You know, quite quite what we're. You know, how how much we backed off from that. But look. I mean, it's certainly the Saudi the Saudi war in Yemen is is very bad and it's a very big deal and people should be up in arms about it. But I guess the two basic points I make about all that are uh, one, I don't want to fall into that kind of whataboutism that that says like anytime we're we're 
talking about one situation and say, oh, don't talk about that, talk about this. Right. Because uh, I think that's a way of passing the hot potato forever. I think it's something that, like, if you look back at the things that people who um, who were defending South Africa or at least were against the international boycott movement in the 1980s were saying, there was a lot of that, right? Why, why are people, uh-huh. other people only talk about South Africa? What about... All of these other countries in Africa with human rights abuses. What about the communist countries? Why aren't people talking about that? And then I think the, the last and maybe most significant point I'd make is that um, because there weren't, there were very few white settler uh, governments at the time left. Sure, but they have a. But I'm, I'm saying you know that these were real talking points that were used at the time. But South Africa was the the last of the white. Colonizers, I believe. When did Mugabe take over Rhodesia? I could tell you. Yeah. Um, but uh, but in any case, uh, the the last I think most significant point I make about all that would just be that uh, that they, it cuts it cuts both ways, right? That if you that you can't have um, adherence to Israel be as big a deal as it is in American politics. And then turn around and say uh, that uh, that that people who have a problem with that policy should stop, should like emphasize it less, should 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 stop talking and thinking about it so much. Well, I mean, if uh, absolute loyalty to Saudi Arabia was something that Democrats and Republicans competed over all the time, right? That they have a if if uh, if if people you know if if prominent centrist Democrats and Republicans wax poetic all day every day about how much they love Saudi Arabia if uh, if the accusation of being anti-Saudi uh, was, 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 was something right. that was a huge, a huge thing in right. American politics, uh, then I would say that uh, that probably people who were critical right. of or for the Saudi war in Yemen would talk a lot more about that and frankly like also the fact that it's it's uh, that it's it's divided that that it's an issue that's a that, great point that that, that divides that, people within um, even within you know broadly progressive uh, circles so much I mean if if I that is a, let me just let me just repeat what uh, you just said because I'm going to uh, quote you on well, basically what you're saying because you know, I'm it's uh, Memorial Day weekend and I'm going to be seeing some friends but so I'm going to say Professor Ben Burgess says, of course we hold, I'm paraphrasing you, and I'm, uh, Professor Ben Burgess says, Americans hold Israel to a higher standard than Saudi Arabia, because in America, both parties compete for the Israeli vote, for the Zionist vote, and they sing the praises of Israel as the gold standard of democracy in the Middle East, it's a template upon which they, when we invaded Iraq and talked of, of a domino effect of democracy spreading throughout the Middle East, Bush was speaking of Israel. So, of course, we're going to hold Israel to a higher standard than Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia, we, we side with because of the oil. Yeah, we, we don't think people, Saudi Arabia's praises. Yeah, there are very few people in the United States. Uh, who who will really go to bat uh, for, uh, for for Saudi or Saudi Arabia? I mean, certainly. Wow, that is thank you. That, that is right. a great great point. 
and you know, and and, I, and I'll I'll even say personally that uh, you know, if over the course of my years of criticizing the U.S. alliance with Saudi Arabia, uh, if if I had as if I had people throughout my entire adult life passionately defending Saudi Arabia to me, uh, if uh, if my right. Um, you know, if if I I've been watching TV with my grandmother and uh, we'd seen uh, and we'd seen Saudi carbon carnage in Yemen and she and uh, she'd said, well, what do you expect? You know, you have to do something about these, you know, right. foodie terror, you know, terrorists, you know, that they uh, and 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 if if I'd had uh, you know if if I'd had people who were around me in various forms my whole wow. life passionately defending Saudi Arabia, if I'd spent the last uh, the last three weeks. Uh, arguing with my David, friend David Feldman about Saudi Arabia, then uh, then then probably I would um, you know then, then probably I would seem more um, you know like more I would I would probably emphasize and bring up uh, you know right. Saudi, you know Saudi Arabia more right now. Unfortunately, it seems like not that people shouldn't be. People should be ex- probably much more than they are extremely angry about U.S. support for uh, for Saudi Arabia, but also. I think when people defend it, it's a defense that's purely in terms, like, not right. always, but 99% of the time, it's purely real politic. You know, it's like, oh, what are you right. going to do? Yeah, you know, you might, I, I hate to be sure, presumptuous, sure. but this is a almost like a column, perhaps, like a letter to American Jews like me, because you really did just answer that question for me brilliantly. I, I, I just want to repeat it because it's it's so it, w- it was really amazing. I asked you what is this obsession with Israel? Why aren't you concerned about what's going on? And, and, and you said because Israel is considered the gold standard, basically, of democracy in the Middle East. So of course we're going to hold it when you have people giving full-throated support for this bastion of freedom. In the Middle East, we are going to hold it to a, as high a standard as we hold the United States. If you're going to say that Israel is the 51st state, which some people have said, then we expect it to behave accordingly. Yeah, I mean, I think you should apply the same standards everywhere. But yeah, I think if I think if people are going to if, if there's going to be if defense and identification with Israel, if, uh, if singing the praises of Israel is going to be this much of a part of mainstream American politics and it's going to be that much of a, is going to be emphasized that much there. And, and if, you know, if you're going to encounter as many people as you're going to encounter, you know, who are going to passionately defend it, then yeah, it's, it's probably going to, it's probably going to occupy a lot of real estate in your head, you know, because, uh, you know, because again, I, I think that that's uh, I think that that's a two-way street. By the way, for anybody who's curious, the uh, uh, the column that David uh, David mentioned at the uh, at the at the beginning of our uh, of our time uh, is called "Want to uh, Be Your Own Boss." Democratic socialism is for you. We should talk about that next time. Read Ben Burgess over at Jacobin. "Want to Be Your Own Boss." Democratic socialism is for you. Millions of U.S. workers dream of being their own boss, but that kind of autonomy is impossible for the vast majority of the population under capitalism. Under democratic socialism, things could be different. We should have this conversation next week. 
Absolutely. Yeah, read him over Jackman. Go by canceling comedians while the world burns. Listen to give them an argument. You can watch it on YouTube. This man is, God, you know, this was, you kind of blindsided me today. Uh, you, you solved some problems for me over the weekend. I, I just want to show you something. You know the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, right? Yeah. You know, he's coming to us from his Malibu. You know, he has a home in the Malibu co colony. Did you know that? I did not. Oh, there's a lot of money in the reverending game. And that's his, our Zoom people can see his estate. And he rents it out. This is where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn makes his fortune. You know, there there are uh, compacts when you join the Malibu colony. You can't be an Airbnb person. But the Reverend Barry, like, because he's a reverend, nobody's going to really prosecute him. Let me show you. He rented it out to a couple. He said just six people. They threw a party. This happened. Let me show you what happened. This is the Reverend Barry W. And this is his security camera. And there they go. Look at them. And he lost the entire sun deck. And I get, yeah. Uh, but apparently you're back in the house, right? I'm back in the house. Yeah. yeah. And, and have you rebuilt the sun deck? Well, only so I could dump people off. <laughs> Come on, what do you want? It's a holiday. It's Memorial Day. Well, they, well, yeah. Let me let me say goodbye to Professor. But I, you know, it's it's embarrassing. Uh, he's uh, he's in the chat room. Ben Burgess is talking to the. He he always gives them an argument, so I always engage him and you know, I fight him on the show. And I I I mop the floor with him. This is another. We're now seventy-five and one. Yeah, and we haven't even we haven't even done this seventy-five times. Like some of them were just so bad they can't. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again. Read them over, Jacobin. Listen to give them an argument. It's a great podcast. And Google, you know, look for Professor Burgess on YouTube. He, he's fighting. You pick fight. I mean, I you will argue with anybody. Except your wife. I, I I went out to dinner, and she just steamrolls the man. He just, Yes, dear, whatever you say. No, that's not true. Thank you, Ben Burgess. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, Professor. Joining us is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. He is an attorney, a barrister, an officer of the court, a lawyer, a counselor, not a divorce attorney. He's a member of the Supreme Court Bar, for nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And besides being a lawyer, he's an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Welcome. Sorry. What? <laughs> I'm just saying it's nice to be here. You know, you can be anywhere with Zoom. I know. Any background. So, although I, I don't think I, I was in Malibu twice, I think, but I can look like I'm there. Yeah, I can look like I'm a musician because look at all these uh, pictures around me, pictures right. of guitars. I'm actually in Malibu 
but I want to look like I'm the salt of the earth. So I use this <laughs> backdrop of a disheveled yeah. apartment in New York in an air shaft. You know, the air shaft turned out to be a blessing because wow. it's quiet. It's quiet. Everything is quiet. You don't hear street noise, so you can do the Don't pot. you hear the air shaft? It's a pretty... Don't you hear the air going up the air shaft? No. You don't? It's a parking garage. Occasionally, you can hear some yeah. a-hole blasting his car stereo as he's parking yeah. the car. But I go down it, and I straighten them out because I'm not afraid. Does it, does it matter to you what kind of music is being blasted? I mean, do you, do you just, you don't like the noise? You don't like the kind of music? Just clarify that for me. I don't like any music being blasted. It's, okay. uh, you're forcing your taste on me. I don't like smelling people's food yeah. or cooking. Yeah. The only thing worse than smelling something from your kitchen is smelling something coming off of you. Like I get into an elevator with my neighbors and they've, Eating at McDonald's, I, 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 I can smell if somebody just ate at McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. And, and I tell them that. Huh. I, I say you, you ate fries, and I can smell it on you. Yeah. Step, please. So that's why I'm not taking the mask off. Because no. it smells here in New York. They don't take the mask off. You know, we had an incident here, right outside of Washington in Northern Virginia, just the other day, where a guy came up to a woman who had a couple of kids and in parroting Tucker Carlson, he started screaming at her, why are your children still wearing masks? Don't you know people are vaccinated? And then, just like Tucker Carlson told people to do, accused her of child abuse and suffocation of her own children. Wow. Yeah. So and you're a reverend. Yes. And a lawyer. Yes. People live for the fight. There's a type of person, you know, some people cut themselves to feel alive. And I've been there yeah. with fighting, you know, arguing. Yep. I feel good when I get on the high horse and I fight with somebody until I realize I'm only here for the fight. I really don't care about this political issue. I'm not even looking for a solution. I'm, I just want to hear myself speak, and I want to see how facile I am with words and what kind of sentences I can string together and dominate you. But I don't really care about gun control, which is not true. But I'm saying I find that, sure. that isn't that... The subtext of so many conversations and arguments on radio and television and at Memorial Day barbecues, people are using politics to position themselves as opposed to actually solve the issue. Yeah, there are people who do that. I, I may have mentioned on this show before when my wife and I had a dinner with Ted Cruz and his wife. And everything we said in the dinner we had before he and I had a debate at the press club was he, he wanted to argue with. I mean, literally anything you would say, how you raise your children, anything, whether it was of enormous importance or not, he and his wife uh, 
would just start an argument. And I didn't think there was any point to most of the arguments, and I've been kind of hard on Ted Cruz for a long time. Because he's a hard on. <laughs> but I wanted to apologize to him, just in case he's listening, because he might be. It's hard to know. But he's a fan of the show. Yeah, two days ago, he's on the Sean Hannity show, and a fly lands on his lip, and it crawls into his mouth, and it appears that he actually eats it. And then he takes a swig of water from his plastic water bottle, and, and, I, and I, want, I say, I want to apologize, because this is an act of rebellion at this time. Here we have most people at this time in our history, looking at cicadas, if they're in the 12 or 14 states where they come out, and publishing recipes, how to eat them, how, how to grill them, how to cover them in chocolate. But not Ted Cruz. He says, the heck with that. I'm the rebel. I'm going to eat house flies. Well, is, is this the same fly that landed on Mike Pence's head? This must have gotten... Late night television must have made a meal out of that. Well, I'm not sure well. that it's. I'm not sure that it's happened early enough. When did it happen? Night. It probably happened last night on Sean Hannity. That oh. is Wednesday night. Right, Scott, they, Sean Hannity. They have to be all. We should find that clip. He ate yeah, the fly. Did he know he was eating the fly? I'm pretty sure it looks like he did. It looks like he let it crawl in his mouth, and then guzzled some water. Wow. But that's that's a rebel for you. They live for the fight. They live for the argument. You're a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the problem with a country that respects lawyers? Lawyers live for the argument. They they will argue any side. Isn't that a problem? Well, if you're a lawyer that will argue any side, if you have no principles. You know, everybody's entitled, for example, in a criminal prosecution to a lawyer, but everybody's not entitled to pick whatever lawyer they want. You know, my old friend, civil rights lawyer, Joe Rao, uh, used to say, and he was a great lawyer, but he would say, there are people I don't, I will not represent. I mean, they are entitled to a lawyer, but they're not entitled to me. Mm -hmm. So I think I think there are lawyers that do that. I think there are, in fact, lawyers who, whether it's a divorce case or something else, they would be willing to argue either side. But I don't think that's a condemnation of every attorney. I mean, that's why attorneys specialize. They're, they're environmental lawyers because they want to preserve the environment. Or they're oil company lawyers because they want to make a vast amount of money and also destroy the planet or justify using oil. But I don't, I don't think most lawyers have a cavalier. I think when it comes to television, you're more correct that people just will come on and argue. When I used to do that show three hours a day with Pat Buchanan, he would generally, he'd make a suggestion about what to talk about for two hours. I'd come up with something for the third hour. There were things where, in fact, I remember this very well. He, he, was, he had some guy on who was trying to explain why synthetic meat of some kind 
was a good thing to eat. And um, we had a producer who would give me a couple of pieces of paper about the issues that he was wanted to talk about. So I'd be prepared. So I saw one column in USA Today about this issue, something about meat, not sure what it was. And I, I remembered one piece of it, one tiny argument against whatever his guy was saying. And I just went ballistic, just, just to prove a point about how terrible this guy's arguments were and what miserable it was. They knew one fact. So contrary to the general view that you have when you have a debate every afternoon with somebody you disagree with, is you, you don't criticize the person for something they said. I mean, you, you're going to be having to come back the next day and the next week and the next month. And But he Pat comes back from the break at the half hour and says, you know, we're talking about meat. Barry doesn't know anything about this, but he is arguing like this is the most important thing in his life. <laughs> and I looked at him like, yeah, you got me. Right. So it can be done. And in fact, I, I was even thinking earlier today, wouldn't it be interesting if you had a show one week where you wanted all of your guests to act like they were conservatives and make conservative arguments? Well, I, that I be fun. Yeah, and I kind of do that as as the interviewer to to give the other side of somebody the this show. I've, I've seen the numbers. When there's a fight on this show, yeah. the numbers, we get good numbers. If there's an yeah. argument, if somebody storms off, yeah. it does well. Mm. But it doesn't, it, it, it feels bad. It doesn't, it doesn't help anything. So people uh, want to see a fight. They want to see an argument as opposed to a solution. Well, then how do you explain, though, what has happened with something like the Fox News Channel, where they used to actually want arguments, but now uh, they don't. They only want people who will echo the views of the hosts. I mean, there are marginal differences. And Juan Williams, who is an African-American kind of somewhat liberal person, the human uh, punching bag on the five. Human punching bag on the five. He's no longer going to be on the five. His last uh, day was a few days ago. He's going to do occasional uh, visits from uh, from Washington and be piped in. But they're looking for some other liberal. And they also pretty much given up on, on what I thought was a very clever concept. It's called Outnumbered. It's on at noon, I think, in the East Coast. And it's all women... And they used to just, they, they'd have three conservative women, one kind of liberal woman, and then one guy that would be the punching bag from everyone. But Juan it, Williams, you know, just, I felt, should not have stayed as long as he did. Whenever I, I you know, he is a serious journalist yep. being disrespected by the charlatans like Jesse sure. Waters and Greg Gutfeld, these yeah. illegitimate journalists, not, they're just personalities. Juan Williams is, I think he used to be with NPR. Yeah, uh, he was. He's a legitimate he journalist, and yeah. they disrespected him. 
at some point he should have he was taking the money it it, it was yeah. and, and there was this hollow look in his eyes and i began to resent him i thought yeah. you're you're letting them make a fool out of you and you're in an indefensible position he should not have stayed there but he took the money uh, over his uh, self-esteem I mean, I think it's the question, though, that any of us that, you know, I... I and, uh, Professor Ann Lee, you're right, uh, said that he, he went right wing when he went to Fox News. He did say some things. I think he said, uh, I think he said some racist things, as a matter of fact. Well, I can't remember. Well, let me, uh, here's what he said. He repeated something that I think he had attributed to uh, Martin Luther King. He said, if, you, if you're walking in the dark in an inner city area... Um, and you see some African-American men coming behind you, you want to hope they've just been to a church service. That's pretty racist. Right. Yeah. But, but I think, Juan, I mean, I, I still see him occasionally when I'd come to New York. He'd be on the train coming back uh, when you and I and others did Feudal Sang show in the afternoons. And he'd be there, and we'd chat about things. But he, he did become more conservative, and I think his predecessor on that show was Bob Beckel, you know, who managed the campaign of... Uh, of uh, Gore? No, he managed the campaign of uh, Mondale Ferraro, I think. And he... Um, but he never was a terribly good progressive. I mean... And he's he turned into, isn't Beckel kind of a? Yeah, well, he had a he had a come to Jesus moment of the worst kind. He got into a real controversy about whether he was hiring people uh, when he was going through a divorce to come to his house to have sex, and it was a huge scandal in Washington. And um, he was hiring he was, people. Hang on for one second. Yeah, he hired yeah. women to come to his house. Yes, yes, to be. What, his attorney? And then he's... No, no. You're talking about prostitutes. Yes, that's... I just didn't want to use that word. Oh. No, yes. And he got into a lot of trouble, and he kind of admitted it. And then he was a friend of Cal Thomas. Cal Thomas was the... Of the director. The bad comb-over. The bad comb-over guy. But, but i got to say, Cal is a very clever guy. And if you're looking for... A, conservative who's actually clever as opposed to Greg Gutfield, Gutfeld, um, Cal is that. And, and, and they kind of bonded after that embarrassing incident. Bob did become a, a Christian. I think he and Cal may have written a book or at least for a while did a, a kind of op-ed together uh, looking for some kind of common ground. Well, Cal, Cal Thomas is it? A Christian first, a Republican second, right? Yes, I think he would say that, and, and I think he actually means it. I mean, I was on things with Cal uh, in a day when we were kind of living on cable television, and he might, I remember once uh, the issue they wanted on Fox around noontime was uh, uh, hanging the Ten Commandments in public schools. And so whoever the host was said, says uh, to me, well, what's wrong with this? And I explained the constitutional issues. He's, she goes to Cal and says, well, Cal, what do you think? And he goes, I think Barry's right. 
was the shortest segment in the history of Fox News. It literally was over as soon as he said that. So, and uh, he had he had a quirky things where he he opposed the faith-based initiative, which is to give money to religious organizations to do social work, and most most liberal Democrats even kind of hedge about that. Uh, he opposed voter guides and other things that would engage Christian churches and other religious entities in campaign in campaigns for candidates for public office by often skewing the the issues that they considered and uh, and he was in fact I think he and I actually did a joint press conference opposing the electoral activities of the Christian coalition so I mean he was he's not a nut in any sense and he's just wrong about everything and he was given briefly very briefly, a show of his own on the Fox News channel. He had Jay Sekulow and I on one one day, and it really was good. I mean, Jay's also a guy that is, he's for Medicare for all. He's against the death penalty. He doesn't have all... Wasn't he Trump's attorney? He's now Trump's attorney, his private attorney. And I haven't spoken to him since he became Trump's private Wasn't attorney. Wasn't he once a Jew as well? He was a Jew. He... He was a member of an organization called Jews for Jesus. He represented them in some solicitation cases at airports and other things. But now, then so he's he mentally became, ill, basically. No. He's a sick man. Why is he sick? Because he changes his mind about religion. Eh, Bob Novak did the same thing. Yeah, well, Bob Novak wasn't that. I'll, I'll agree with that. But there's, there's something... Cal had a, um, I mean, Cal still, he was the most popular conservative columnist in America for a long time, dwarfing even the more popular, well-known uh, conservative columnists. I mean, people just like to read him. And if you read his books, they are kind of funny. They have clever little lines. I remember he and I were having a debate in, in uh, Albany about some kind of church-state issue, and in the question and answer period, a guy walks up to the microphone with his arm in a sling, and he asks the question, and Cal says, before I answer that, heal. <laughs> they got a great, it was a great line, and he got a lot of, a, a lot of laughs and a lot of applause. But he, he is, you know, he is, he supports Medicare for all. I mean, He's just not, uh, uh, Jay does. I don't know what Cal thinks. Uh, Cal does not, probably doesn't. So how, these, I mean, people, how could you support him. Medicare for all and be Donald Trump's attorney? That makes no sense. No, I. He doesn't really support it, then. Let me ask no, you. I, let me ask I you. I think he. Go ahead, sure. Go, no, go, you go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just saying that um, he's a. He's the kind of guy that um, I would like to talk to about what he really feels about his representation of Trump. And, and about a year and a half ago, we were actually going to have lunch, and uh, but he had to cancel because there was some kind of legal issue with Trump, and we never really rescheduled it. Last week, to... last week, I think I pissed you off. Why? I said Trump's never going to jail 
I just thought you were wrong. This week? Yeah. Am I more wrong or more p possibly correct? Or a little more correct? No, I think you're more wrong. I'll tell you why. You know, I, I was thinking about grand juries, and I, I used to be really... Cyrus Vance, con uh, let's see, Cyrus Vance convened the grand jury this week. Yeah. It's yeah. going to sit for about six months yeah. to look into the Trump organization. And Correct. the Attorney General, Letitia James of New York, yeah. Yeah. is now pursuing criminal complaints with Correct. Cyrus Vance. She had just pursued a civil right. complaint. Now it's criminal as well. So what does that mean? Explain to me what a grand jury is, what they do, and what it means. Well, grand juries are required in most criminal cases by the Constitution itself. So that you, the idea is, the theory was, before you go to trial, there ought to be a collection of people, you know, 12 to 16 people, who will review the evidence beforehand and determine whether there's probable cause to go to trial. That's the theory. Mm -hmm. But in practice, these things are, I, I think there was a, a lawyer in Rochester who once said, grand juries are so beholden to prosecutors that they would be willing to indict a ham sandwich. Right. And this is what happens. You get in there, if, if you are a prosecutor, you take the case, you decide what evidence to present to that grand jury, and the grand jury listens to your side of the case, there is no opportunity in most grand juries in the country um, to have a defense even presented to the grand jury. So you can have 12 lawyers, they can't get into the jury room, the grand jury room, in order to make the case. They sometimes have subpoena power themselves, so if they hear the name, if they, if they, you know, if in the midst of the Donald Trump thing, somebody says, David Feldman, they say, David Feldman, we should talk to him. And in most instances, they have the power to subpoena you, and you have to show up, and you have to give testimony, because combined with your appearance at that, you almost always get immunity from prosecution yourself. But it's so stacked. It's That's not baked into it. They offer you immunity. Uh, they Generally, they require you to take it. Okay. And then you take it. But then, but then you're expected to tell them even more than you might have told them otherwise. I mean, it's... But it, it's a really, really heavily criticized institution as part of the judicial system in the United States. The American Bar Association, although they, they kind of live with it, but even they, and they're very conservative, but I mean, they, they've even been critical of it. And like so many other things, in the 70s, there's actually a coalition of groups that formed something called the Coalition to End Grand Jury Abuse which doesn't exist anymore either. So all of these issues, when we talk about criminal justice reform, we're so excited about certain things, and we just forget all these other ambiguities. A grand jury is convened. They sit for six months. Who are these people who can get... <laughs> yeah, well... That's a good question. How many, and how many jurors are there on a grand jury? Well, there's, uh, there's usually between a dozen and 16. And do you get and paid? 
Yeah, well, you get paid on a regular jury, too, but it's like $15 a day. Do you get to go home at night? Oh, yeah, generally. But there is secrecy that's a requirement of the grand jury, so the prosecutor can't talk about it. There's no real judge in the room, either. Uh, there's a, a person who's kind of writing down everything that is said. There are rare circumstances so you're basically where you actually assi- find it. So a grand jury, as I understand it, is you're assisting the prosecutor in deciding whether or not to seek an indictment. That is correct. They're, they're a focus group. They're basically, they're, you're, you're presenting yeah. an idea for a show. That's right. And they're going, That's yeah, I, I, I could see that. So they're I like, see it. Yeah. yeah. And you do need, you generally need a, a certain percentage. And the change, there are grand juries in states, too. I'm a little confused about what the rules are at the federal level. But so uh, hang on for one second. This is, this is fascinating. Up. Yeah. Does the grand jury vote? Yes, the grand jury votes. Can can they prosecute? I guess it's different in every state. Suppose suppose the grand jury says we don't want to indict. Can the prosecutor still overrule the grand jury? It is very hard to overrule a grand jury, but they don't need to be overruled because, in general, they're so uh, sympathetic to whatever the one-sided argument is that's being presented by the prosecutor. You, so as you just said, you can get them to indict a ham sandwich. Yeah, I mean, you, what you do, what you do is they they uh, they'll get all this evidence, and then they'll be asked whether there is probable cause that a crime was committed, and they'll the prosecutor will say, "Now here are the possible crimes that might have been con- committed," and then they'll vote on each one, and if they vote to indict, that's in some places the only opportunity you get to actually bring an indictment. But these are people who... Hang on for one second. This is really a great legal lesson. I think we kind of know what a grand jury is, but we don't. If I'm Rudy Giuliani... Yep. Is there a grand... There isn't a grand jury yet being convened to look into him, right? But he's facing... Um, You can indict... can, Can a prosecutor indict without a grand jury? Yeah, there are ways that you can do it. There's something called an information which can be used in some circumstances. And in misdemeanors, you can always use a process and avoid the grand jury. The grand jury is is a constitutional requirement, essentially only for felonies. And so the only way to bring somebody up on a felony is through a grand jury. Well, it's... In essence, yes, although there are, there are ways. If this was a law school class, then you'd go into the weeds. But okay. we don't need to do that. It's a little unfair because if I'm Donald Trump, I don't get a practice session the way the prosecutor does. The prosecutor gets to throw all these ideas before the grand jury as I said earlier, they're the focus group, and they say, yes, we like indicting him for X, Y, and Z. And then the prosecutor goes, well, listen, we tested this. It worked well. Let's go. And then but Trump doesn't get to focus group in front of a no. jury his defense. No, he doesn't. 
See, this is one of the many things where, in theory, it needs. this is a system that needs to be reformed. But in the instance of people with extraordinary power and privilege and finances like Donald Trump, it's easy to say, wait a minute, you know, it's just, it's not fair to him. Instead of thinking first, you know, it's not fair to all those people that are accused of uh, trafficking in marijuana. They, they don't get the same break. Cops don't do badly with uh, grand juries because grand juries, if they have any reluctance to indict, if they say, uh, I'd like ham and cheese to indict, cops are the ones that they don't indict. And it happens. And there's a lot of evidence that it does all over the country. Now, you watch cable news. I watch a little of it. Yep. I should watch more, actually. Uh, Seriously, it's irresponsible for me. It's lazy that I don't watch uh, cable news. The other night I heard them say that Black Lives Matter is the most successful civil rights movement in American history. I heard somebody say that. Mm. Is that true? Um, I, that, I, doubt that, that, I doubt that that's true. Somebody compared, somebody said the police right now are having their Harvey Weinstein moment, which is kind of interesting. What? Well, kind of interesting. It was Harvey Weinstein, I believe, in 2017 that launched the Me Too movement. Right. But And things aren't the same. No, it's Derek not. Chauvin yeah. could be, maybe, are we going to see the thing... Thing. The conversation has shifted. Police are not defended the way they used to be. Well, yeah, not if you're Republican senators. Um, right, that's true. Can you imagine, can, you know, just as an aside, can you imagine the mother of one of the police officers killed on January 6th who's making personal pleas most of Thursday to every Republican senator? M- many of them saw her. She may be persuaded two people. Were, were there police officers? I'm sorry. Uh, were police officers killed on January 6th? Yeah. Well, or, or they they had injuries that led to their death a day or two. Later. Suicide, right? Yeah, but I mean, um, but she goes and talks to these people, and they basically ignore her. I mean, they, they they say there's very they're very upset. It's sorry this happened to your son, but you know we're not going to form a commission to study it. And, All right, but, play yeah. the other side for me. You're yeah. a lawyer. You yeah. said it would be interesting to take the conservative side. I, I don't want you to do that. What if a group of Bernie supporters did that? What would I say to you if some Bernie bros, yeah. the mythical Bernie bro, yeah. stormed the Capitol okay. and did yeah. exactly that? But I believed 
in everything they believe in except for storming the Capitol. What would I be sure. saying? To, to, what would I say? Well, I, I, I'm quite confident you would say, but the violence is never justified. You can't go in to the Capitol or anywhere else and engage in the kind of conduct that these people engaged in. I think that's what you'd say. Would I say, but can you see why they did it? I mean, Medicare for all, you know, what they did in, to, to Congress is nothing compared to what doctors and health insurance executives are doing to 50,000 Americans every year. And I can see myself say saying that. Well, I can see you saying that, too. But then when they say, but is it justified? David Feldman is going to say, violence is never justified. I'm going to say, if it's, I'm being honest with you. Yeah. I would say, yeah, they should be arrested, but they didn't really do that much damage. And maybe the way to stop another one is to address income inequality and give everybody yeah. Medicare for all. Maybe that's how you stop violence. Maybe now Congress, which is in a bubble of privilege, got the message. I can hear myself saying that if it were the non-existent mythical Bernie bros who did yeah. that. There's no such thing as a Bernie bro, by the way. But right. I know that because you're, you're, talking, you're, you're talking to a Bernie bro, and we yeah, don't I'm exist. That. No, we I don't really exist. Don't no, you already established that you don't really live in that apartment uh -huh. that looks yeah. where you look like you're sitting. But, um, yeah, I understand that. But you have to look. There are all kinds of rational arguments. One thing I, I believe about progressives, you know, I don't think most Americans are all that progressive. I wish they were. But what I will say about them is that they're almost always correct. The evidence they look at is not clouded by any kind of mythology. It's not clouded by any kind of conspiracy theories. It's just factually. If you look at the issues of the healthcare system in this country, aside from apologists for the hospital industry or the drug industry, nobody really thinks we got a great healthcare system here. No. Or if they say it in principle, the first time they go to a hospital, they come out and they go, this isn't that good. So we're right. We progressives are right about it, about energy policy, about income inequality, about war and peace, about civil rights and civil liberties. We're correct. The other people are not correct. But it's not just that they're wrong. It's that when they look at the evidence, they don't see the truth. And this plays out in everything. This is the now the third, you know, recount, so-called recount of the Arizona ballots. Look at the nutty things they're looking for. First of all, this uh, Cyber Ninja organization, which this is their first audit, by the way. They do cybersecurity, they say, but they, they admit they've never done an audit. First, they were looking for watermarks on some of the ballots. This is based on the theory that somehow there are these secret watermarks, and then that got hard to explain. So then they decided what they were looking for were fibers, bamboo fibers in the ballots themselves because there was a rumor that a hundred thousand or more ballots had been deposited in Arizona 
from China. And obviously, if it's from China, it must have bamboo fibers. And MSG. And MSG. And, and I don't mean Madison want, Square Garden. No, and I, I think most people knew that. Okay. But if you, but if, and if you eat the ballot, just to continue this bad. No, don't do that. No, no, no. We have a meal deal here, Mo, coming up. And know, five minutes later, you're going to eat. We won't do those jokes. No, okay. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, this stuff is not, this stuff is. Do you vote like I'll take one from column A? I'll vote for a politician from I column A. I thought you weren't going to do this. Well, that's a, that's an innocent joke. How about it? the joke I was going to tell? How about if you eat the ballot, you're hungry an hour later? So, yeah, I, I don't, we'll have to run that by Emil because Emil. Please, please do that. Yeah. I wish you were here. Because jo- I, I mean, I, jokes that you think are innocuous. It turns out they're very, I don't know, of course. joking about chi- like being hungry five minutes after you eat Chinese food. Yeah. I would like to, for example, Emil is going to defend the, the cartoonist for the New York Post who did the Yang cartoon yeah. where he's running out of the subway and right. somebody turns to the other and goes, oh, the tourists are here. Yeah. And that wasn't, to me... That was, he's a tourist. He doesn't live in New York City. He's got some right. mansion in the suburbs. That's yeah. what, that, it wasn't about Asian people not being real American citizens. I don't think. But, well, Emil, I think Emil is going to agree with me. So the conspiracy theories about the elections, intellectually, I find them boring. To me, that ship has sailed. Those are crazy people. And I... I say to myself, I'm asking for advice sure. because I say to myself, okay, there are only so many hours in the day. I have to learn the important issues. These are crazy people in Arizona. Biden's our president. Don't dignify them. But by not dignifying them, you're ignoring dangerous people, right? You have to keep an eye on them. Yes. So you so yeah, how do you really do. so what train how do you train your mind to listen to these these lunatics how, how do you convince yourself that it's worth your time to read about their ridiculous theories well because I think you have to combine reading about their ridiculous theories with looking at the poll results about what people believe and if you have 26 to 30 percent of the entire electorate believing that Donald Trump ought to be the president and the collateral beliefs like the election was stolen. Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. If you don't listen to those arguments and don't start to figure out what they are, um, you, you miss an opportunity to even engage any of those 30 percent. Now, you could write them off. I mean, I, I do wonder about that. Just right off the 30%, say, but there's 70% of the people we can get, so let's make those arguments for them. But the, the fantastic ability of these right-wing media sources, you know, Drudge is not nearly as right-wing as he used to oh, be. Oh, he's, I mean, if you yeah. Look, yeah. Well, he's, I mean, I, he's allegedly gay and allegedly Jewish. Allegedly. But, yeah. So I think he got allegedly spooked 
by the alleged yeah. presidency of Donald alleged yeah. Trump. Allegedly. Alleged Trump. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. But, but, you know, so there's Fox now, and of course there's One America News, which has extraordinary access, by the way, to the recount in Arizona that no other uh, news organization has. So you, these, these are... Here's what I would suggest. I, I suggested this to my wife once when she's gone on a long trip in the car. I said, just listen to conservative talk radio. Just the whole trip, six, seven hours. Listen to it. She came back. She said, I listened to it. I can't believe it. I can't believe that they say the same thing one show to the next show, that they have the same guests, that they make the same arguments. But it's all reinforcement. It's reinforcement of the big lie which you know they got you know they got me tucker carlson in fact john ross who was on the show earlier i had my guard down and i decided to watch tucker carlson because i wanted to see how you defend Derek chauvin yeah and i was watching tucker carlson through the corner of my eye doing something else and i saw a story and the way they edited it made it look like there's tape of Chauvin with George Floyd that is only being seen in Europe and it's George Floyd resisting arrest and I and I had a I watched and I called John and I go you know there's a tape of George Floyd that they haven't been showing us where you know Chauvin it's going to be an interesting trial because Chauvin uh, it's going to be hard to say he was out of line and then I, then I watched it again, and I went, "You mf'er, you you played with the timeline, and and but if you're not, if you don't have a critical eye, you you will believe it. It's e- it really is evil, but it's it is evil. it's banal. Like when you know John Stewart is coming back and he's tweeting out. Tucker Carlson is a man, you know, making fun of. And I'm thinking, you're just a cheerleader. You're not, you know, it's so easy to go after Tucker Carlson, but you have to. You know, you can't be too cool for school and not go after Tucker Carlson. I I have that too cool for school thing. Like, oh, come on, we already know he's a Nazi, which he is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I miss QAnon. You know, um, what, you okay? Let me, take a, let me take a little tea here. Are you, are you, this is just tea. Okay. I was actually, you know, for, if you want, just if you wanted to have like a coughing attack for our highlight reel, maybe it would be considerate of you. Yeah, well, I'll do that at a later time. Okay. We should, but, uh, schedule, we should schedule like we a schedule coughing. I would like you, you actually to... get a coughing attack while I'm talking about a minister and a lawyer who has been arrested for embezzlement. Yeah. And then you start coughing, and it, we realize it's it's nerves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. That's a yeah, that would be a nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Go, I interrupted your cough. Go finish your cough. No, these characters, no matter how bizarre their claims, do have to be rebutted. And here's another reason: when I was a high school student, 
I was really into all this uh, kind of uh, pseudoscience. I mean, I was worried about flying saucers, and I, I, I wondered if you could. And ju just a, a week ago, there was a huge lightning storm here in Washington. So I went to the door. We have a big kind of glass door in the front door. I looked out, and the lightning's flashing, and I said to Joanne, scientifically, is it possible that if I stand here, there might be a circumstance where my face would become embedded in the glass. In other words, the flash of light would be so bright that it would take my face and put it in the glass in the door. So she looked at me. She said, of course not. But that's the kind of stuff. I used to read a magazine called Fate Magazine, F-A-T-E. I used to read it kind of religiously. I, I, I read every science, uh, every flying saucer book ever published. George okay, so, there, so and then I was a little, I mean, I was a, a high school student, and I was believing all this crap. All right, hang on now. This is yeah. important because this yeah. week, I love having you on the show because it's a great way to review the week. <laughs> this week, uh, a former defense employee is complaining to the inspector general that he was punished for saying that he knew about the Pentagon issuing a report on UFOs. He went public with the Pentagon's concern about UFOs. Now, I am willing, I am willing to entertain a one-state solution. I am willing to entertain a public option. If the economy gets so good, I'm willing to say, you know what, Medicare for all is what I want, but if the economy gets so good, maybe we can, maybe a public option for the time being, and we can coexist with these evil health insurance companies. UFOs. I draw the line on UFOs. I uh, I just will not go there and entertain the idea of UFOs. I, I just don't think uh, they're real. Let me ask you to refine your answer. Do you mean that there's nothing, for example, a weapon that's been in, invented in another country? I like, yes, I'm identified. But what you mean is you don't believe there are unidentified flying objects that contain outer space aliens. Exactly. Right. I don't either. Right. But I did for a while. But I it, really did. It's wishful thinking. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to... F hang on. Hang on. I'm trying to do something. Okay, hang on. Uh Keep talking. This is, this is, yeah. this okay. is low. Okay. Oh, no. We don't have any quiet time. Hang on. Hang on. Uh, yeah, I don't believe in uh, UFOs. This is just a joke for the Zoom audience, if I can get it going. Yeah. yeah this is you want to say anything else? Make no, sure I just it. don't believe okay. in... Yeah. Uh, it's not going to work. I wish we had... What am I doing here? Hang on. I'm sorry, everybody. See, this is if we had, I don't, it's not working. Okay, forget it. I wanted, to, I was going to use, forget it.
I, I had a alien. I had an alien mask for. Oh really? Yeah. And yeah, I was going to said it worked. Yeah. We'll do that. Let's do. You know what? Next week we'll we'll debate uh, UFOs, and I'll use the the lens. I'll morph into okay. the. Uh, damn it. Yeah. Well, That's just for the Zoom room. They want to yeah, appreciate gonna, it. Well, I'm not going to have to wear a mask, am I? No, no. no That's good. for the after party. Oh, and it's not a, but it's so you don't believe in UFOs. And, and people get pissed no. off. But it's, of course they do. Yeah, it's, you know, we have drones. They have drones. Yeah. You know, uh, I used to drink pilots drink. People see of things. Course. You know, everybody's smoking pot. You see things. Sure. sure. I don't believe aliens. I don't think anybody who's intelligent enough to fly at the speed of light would know not to visit this shithole of a planet. I, and I do think, I do believe, I don't believe in American exceptionalism, but I do believe in the exceptionalism of planet Earth. Yeah, well... See, I don't think those are two necessarily related ideas. I agree. Why would anybody come to this planet? Although if you see the Zack Snyder four-hour special cut of Justice League, you might have a different view about okay. why they would come. Because it would four hours, you have to believe there was some value to it. I'm more interested in gut biome. <laughs> I, think, I think gut biome is the new frontier. I don't even know what that is. Did I pronounce it or is it Butt Guyome? Is it Butt Guyome? No, that was the, the movie. That was my porn name. Butt Guyome. Okay. Gut the It's the fauna that lives in your intestines. Yeah. Like there are trillions of yeah. bacteria. Yeah, they are. And, and what they, are you going to do with them? Hmm? What are you going to give them voting rights? I, what, what's your point to this? I, I want to be miniaturized. I want to be miniaturized there. and go in there and yeah, yeah. ask questions. Oh, man. Just like in Fantastic Voyage when yes. you shrunk all those people down. Yes. Yeah. I can't you tell you the number that. of times. I think John Hayes suggested <laughs> we do a uh, COVID town squares where we do a Fantastic Voyage where Henry and Irritable and I go inside of me yeah. to yeah. explain how my, my body works. Raquel Wells, Thanks. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my wife actually had breakfast with Raquel Welsh once, because Raquel Welsh actually has some pretty interesting, had at the time at least, progressive ideas about health care. So she, she didn't invite me to go along. I would give anything to have breakfast in bed with Raquel <laughs> Yeah, this has nothing to do with bed. Oh, okay. You always do this. You always you twist harmless statements into crude vulgarities or people will think I, I got into an elevator with Raquel Wells once you did no kidding did you say hello no no my knees buckled though no it was it was it was uh, she was doing Hollywood squares and I was working on really some, yeah and she just came yeah. in and uh, now I once got into an elevator 
with one of the most underappreciated musical geniuses of our time, Paul Williams. Yes. And there's a great documentary about Paul Williams. I don't know that. Yeah, it, uh, I can't yeah. remember. But Paul Williams is a miracle. Paul Williams is one of the greatest TV, movie, and musical personalities who ever existed. Mm -hmm. and he, he's still alive. And he's written some of the greatest songs. He wrote, Rainy Days and Mondays Always Get Me Down. Yeah. And I got it. I swear to you, Reverend, he had a part on The Young and the Restless. And I was working on a show on the lot. And I get into an elevator with him on a rainy day. And it was a Monday. And I get into the elevator with Paul Williams, who wrote Rainy Days and Mondays yeah. Always Get Me Down. And I, I, we were in the elevator, and I said to him, well, it's rainy and Monday, but the only thing that's getting me down is this elevator. Did he appreciate that? No. He, no. <laughs> he looked at me, and he had a cup of coffee, and he goes, it's Monday. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> it's Monday. Please, can I just, can I just work today with him? So he, you know, he smiled and just, you know, but I thought he would go, oh, that's so funny. Come hang out with me and Pat McCormick and I'll give you the keys to the creative kingdom and show you what it's like to be wow. successful. It didn't happen. You always think... I always thought I can say one clever thing to somebody who I have the utmost respect for and they will, you know, open. No, they just want to be left alone. Or maybe it wasn't that clever. That's that was pretty clever. Uh, it was, I thought it was pretty clever. Yeah. I had two floors to come up with it. Well. Yeah. What, how funnier would it be if you had three floors to come up with it? What could you have done to embellish that joke? I would have panicked. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I think we're, we have to say goodbye. Yes, I think we do. I, I think it's time to uh, say goodbye to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. We're going to do uh, the uh, professors and Marianne. It's time for the professors and Marianne, which is exciting. The Reverend yes. Barry W. Lynn, this is where I always love talking to you. You know Professor Adnan Hussein. Absolutely. Um, I, in fact, Professor, I ju you know, I'm writing this book, and I just found an entire He can't read. Of professor Hussein can't read, and, and that's, <laughs> that's not nice. And you knew that about him. Yeah, and I'm here in Malibu, and I don't care. But, no, but uh, uh, Sufism, I was fascinated by that topic in college, and I found a, a rather extensive paper I did on Sufism, and I know that you've written on this subject, and I don't remember anything about it, so I can't say anything that would sound sensible now, but I did want to disclose that I was interested in it. I found the paper. It's not going to be included in my book, because my book wow. is now a hundred and... Because my book, as of now, and it's not even close to being finished, is 125,000 words, which is 50,000 more words than even a large nonfiction book. So it, you're safe, and I'm safe because I'd probably say things that were stupid and you would disagree with. 
Well, you know, there's always room for an appendix, isn't there? Or at least the E version, you could, you know, add a little. Exactly. Exactly. Several people have suggested that. And I thought, no, no, no. If I can just get through this book, I'm going to be happy. And I've set a goal later. Do you have an appendix? My appendix is taken out. I'm glad you asked about it because every time I go into a hospital in this marvelous healthcare system, I'm nearly killed. As you know, I, I had that serious heart thing three years ago. Do you have an index? Uh, How about a table book, of contents? No. Uh, no, I wanted to go the literal route, but I want you to get to the professors and Marianne. The professors and Marianne. Let's do this. But I, we'll do this. We'll I'll come back next week. Okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play our theme song and get some more water, and when we come back... We will be joined by Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ian Faluna. I want to ask Professor Ian Faluna about UFOs and Professor Mary Ann Cummings. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, and sign up for my newsletter this Friday. It's office hours. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the office hours button. It will take you straight. I promise you right now, if you go to hit the office hours button, it takes you right to the link, and you're, you can just sign up and get in. And this Saturday night at 9.30 p.m., it is the last COVID town squares. Half of America is vaccinated. We, we walked you through it, and Henry and Irritable, they, they, they solved it. So this will be our very last COVID town squares. Unfortunately, Henry's going to Germany. So go to davidfeldmanshow.com for all your entertainment and educational needs. We will be right back with the professors and Mary Ann. It's time right now called the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics. A comedy too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an handy full right. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Right now, 
of the David Berman show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome back to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Somebody just sent me a text. He said, how do you get all these guests? I don't know how I do this. I don't know. I, I am blessed. Uh, it's time for the professors and Marianne. Professor Jonathan Bick is a political scientist. Professor Ian Faluna is a professor of atmospheric science. Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the Religion Department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, as well as the host of Guerrilla History with Henry Huckamacki, and he also hosts the Mudgeless podcast. And Professor Marianne Landslide Cummings, besides being a physicist, is also a Parks Commissioner at Aurora, Illinois, and... I want to, well, there, I have a lot on my mind, and I usually, uh, well, I, two things. I wanted to ask Professor Ian Faluno about UFOs. We had an interesting conversation with Ben Burgess earlier, Professor Adnan Hussein. Really interesting conversation, and, and he said something about uh, Jew, Israel being held to a higher standard. I said to him, what do you say to... The, the Jews who say, what is your obsession? When you, I will often hear Jews say, why is everybody obsessed with Israel? What about Yemen? What about what, the human rights abuses that are going on in this country? And Professor Ben Burgess said something that was so brilliant. He said, of course we hold Israel to a higher standard. They are considered the the template upon which democracy is supposed to be placed in the Middle East. You don't have, he said, you don't have anybody in Saudi Arabia, anybody, uh, you don't have politicians in America competing for the Saudi Arabian vote by singing the praises of Saudi Arabia being an, an essential ally. But in Israel, we talk of Israel as being almost like a 51st state. So, of course, we're going to hold it to a higher standard. I thought that was kind of brilliant. I don't know if you want to respond to that, but... Professor Hussein? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I think um, if we do hold them to a higher standard, that would be participating to some extent in the sense of, a, of the double standard, you know, that is often complained about. Um, so, I, you know, that's something that Israel has often claimed for itself, that they are the most moral military and go out of their way more than any other power to avoid civilian death and these kinds of things. And um, that has... Uh, uh, been proven incorrect most of the time as part of the self-mythologizing that is necessary, perhaps. But 
I think, um, I guess I just would be worried about uh, extending American exceptionalism to another. Oh, I yeah. yeah, so that, I mean, I, I think there isn't a lot of attention that is placed on Israel's human rights abuses um, occupation and so on that may concern people that why why aren't we applying the same kinds of standards of attention elsewhere but I think really you have to think about it from the perspective of this is the first real post-World War II major refugee situation a whole UN agency was created to deal with the aftermath of um, 1948 and there have been several, um, you know, big uh, movements of population. And um, because it is the U.S.'s closest ally, I think more attention comes upon them because their role in the Middle East is uh, an extension in some way of the interests of U.S. empire. And so that's why I think there's more attention. Right. Uh, there's no other country that is as closely that receives as much aid or has been as closely associated, um, at least over the last three, four decades, I would say, with U.S. policy as, as a U.S. Uh, ally. Right. And so I think you might have a higher Go ahead, yeah. I think a higher standard is completely fictitious. I mean, it has been for decades. Like, you, you get people saying that if, if they were witness elections in the U.S., they wouldn't. They wouldn't be validated by international standards. I mean, the fact that we're the holders, the purveyors of the ultimate democracy—that's long, long past. I mean, and well, and, and as Professor Hussein democracy. reminded us, Hamas won the election in Gaza, and the United States said, uh, "No do-over, no election." Fatah. How many democratic elections have we thrown over in the past fifty years? Something. Yeah. Uh, Greater than 50, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. Like, that's right. Well, I, I, I would just add one other element, is, which is at least for Americans, we should feel like uh, we should pay a lot of attention to this situation because we're involved. I mean, we like to think, and as I've mentioned uh, uh, in the past, we like to think that it's something that's happening far away between two, you know, groups that have always been involved in some kind of conflict and there really isn't any way we could do anything about it. That's the sort of self-satisfying um, story we tell ourselves when, in fact, of course, we're deeply involved because of the aid and the military, you know, sales and the political cover and so on. So, actually, U.S. citizens should be very concerned and pay a lot of attention because, this is a U.S. ally, um, and so we are more responsible in some ways and could do more about it if we pressured our government to change its policy. So right. there's a reason. Like, you can't do so much about these other um, human rights uh, tragedies elsewhere in the world um, where the, you know, the U.S. doesn't necessarily have that much uh, influence or isn't deeply connected or involved in the specifics of it. Um, and we pay sometimes a lot of attention to those cases, uh, but we should really pay the most attention um, to cases that we are involved in or that our own political action could affect uh, the outcome more directly.
And yeah. I just want to put some context to these numbers. You know, I'm thinking about it. He did, what, $3.8 billion a year to Israel and aid. And I was recently going over some numbers, and I realized if, if you come across all agencies in the U.S. government, all of our research we do on climate change and adaptability across the whole board is about $2 billion. Just to give you, you know, some people might hear trillions of dollars and think, oh, you know, $3.8 billion is not anything. But it's more than we're actually putting forward to, uh, to understand and adapt to climate change. It's absurd. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. Pun- yeah. This country has punished Israel in the past. Reagan withheld mm-hmm. arms sales to Israel. Obama has had withheld arms sales to Israel. It's not the end of the world if America decides to discipline Israel, and it won't be the end of the world, quite frankly, for Jews and or Israel if we impose economic sanctions on the country until they fix Gaza. And whatever the final... I don't, uh, final uh, way to resolve this is Gaza is unacceptable. Right? I'm sorry, Mar- Professor Marion. No, I was just going to amplify Professor Marion's point uh, to uh, sort of take issue with your statement. Uh, we don't hold Israel to a higher standard. We have certainly been holding Iran to a higher standard. I mean, Iran never broke the terms of their agreement with us. The, the Trump administration is doing it. And the Biden administration is continuing this rather hostile stance toward Iran. We certainly held Iraq to a higher standard. They had the UN inspectors in there right. doing their job, you know. And uh, the left is holding Israel to a higher standard. That, the double, that's the argument that you'll hear from okay. the Likud and AIPAC. That we somehow think, you know, the suffering uh, upon Palestinians is worse than suffering that the Saudis inflict upon the Yemenis and, you know, the, and what was inflicted upon the Kurds, etc. All which was our help, by the way. Right. So, I would say at least, hey, I would just say we should be at least as concerned. And, yes, we are more directly involved with Israel in their policy and their government. But the truth is, we didn't even, we weren't even able to bring ourselves to not sell arms to Saudi Arabia when they were killing <laughs> That is true. After Biden said that, we were going to stop that nonsense. Yeah. They went right ahead. All right. Uh, let's start. Uh, I apologize. I have one quick question. Professor Faluna, atmospheric science, UFOs, something. Am I for them or against them? I'm all for them. There are things that happen in the atmosphere that we can't explain, right? Very mysterious. Like yeah. greenhouse yeah. gases. We don't know where they come from. <laughs> We have no idea. They say cars, maybe, but I've heard cow flatulence. Then I hear it's belches, not even flatulence. Did you know that it's really cow belches and not cow flatulence? Well, they have four stomachs, so it comes out both ends. And so, you know, where you divvy out which end it comes out. Yeah. Okay. So UFOs, weather balloons. Little little tips. Uh, if you want to sound more technical and smart, like at the next cocktail party that you go to, because that's going to happen soon, uh, UAP. Call them UAP. Unidentified 
aerial projectiles. But you, if somebody drops something, UAP, you, what is it? UAP. That's what that's the Okay. Do you believe? How do you explain away UFOs as a uh, atmospheric scientist? And certainly, you don't believe we're being visited by extraterrestrials. Uh, you know, in the absence of any real data, I mean, these observations are bizarre, and they, I, I agree they require a lot more scrutiny and, and full disclosure. We, we don't know how often that happens. And, uh, so, I mean, I'm not, willing, I'm not willing to write it off just because there's, there's no theory that suggests that there's, you know, that these aliens would be around. I mean, why not? I, I don't see a reason to... Space junk. Re-entering the atmosphere. Space junk doesn't, like, move in such a way that it's going to pull, like, 90 G-forces and, and do all these bizarre aerial motions, which they're claiming. I mean, people who spend a lot of time in the air, they do, you do get a sense of how things move when you're flying. I spend a lot of time in airplanes doing research, and I, I can imagine if you see things moving like, like these videos seem to indicate, that's... That's a big question. I want to be a character in a bad B movie who denies the existence of UFOs and extraterrestrials. I'm the guy who says they're impossible. And then I wake up with my butt sore. <laughs> I hope it's because... More than usual. <laughs> I hope it's extraterrestrial. I think they're using lube now. So oh, okay. You finally learned that after the fifth. All right, let's go with uh, Professor Jonathan Vick first, please. Oh, I wanted to do, uh, add something to this discussion of uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Yes. Um, actually, I wanted to respond to something you said a little bit earlier, David, which was, uh, you know, you believe that, that Earth is unique. Um, and, and I would say... You know, we have to consider the vastness of the universe before we make any statements like that. Uh, if you're talking about unique in the sense that it has intelligent life. I said I believe in Earth exceptionalism. I think we exceptionalism. are. And I think we are the indispensable planet in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm sure we think that. Um, but I just want to put a little context. Uh, according to NASA, as of 2015, I don't know if they've updated this lately, uh, but they estimate that there are between 100 and 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And they think that most of them have planets. In the universe, there are 200 billion galaxies. And according to Abraham Loeb, who is chair of the astronomy department at Harvard University, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at Harvard's Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, um, he says that it's likely there are a zeta of inhabitable worlds in the known universe. You lost me at Harvard. Yeah, I, I know. I, 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 but if you take Harvard out, it still sounds impressive. Well, then, um, 
That would be a black hole I could live with. What is Zeta, a Zeta of what? A Zeta is 10 to the 21st power, or one with 21 zeros behind it. And uh, so he says there are likely a Zeta of habitable worlds in the observable universe. So I think the chances are pretty good that there is intelligent life out there somewhere. Whether or not it's visited Earth, we don't have any solid evidence of that, uh, at least it's been revealed to us. Now, as a physicist, Professor Marianne, who's yep. counting with her fingers, by the way. No, I'm just trying to figure No, out you were counting with your fingers. Let the record show. She was doing math. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> anyway, okay. Now, what was your question? Well, as a physicist, you know, ast you know astronomy is all mm -hmm. physics. Yes, it is. And, and actually, what was it? The Drake equation is beginning to be science. Actually, started being science maybe about ten years ago. What's the Drake equation? Well, that was I first went to when actually looked at it when I taught astronomy for the first time a few years back, and that was the uh, uh, study came up with this equation as to, to calculate a probability that there is extraterrestrial life of uh, life outside this planet. Well, when they came up with the when they came up with that equation, there was no direct evidence for planets outside the solar system. But they had, you know, maybe about eight or nine terms. You know, the size of the sun, the whether you have a core, uh, hard, uh, a hard core, uh, rocky planet, uh, as opposed to a gassy ball like Jupiter is, uh, things like that. And even back then, back in 2012, I looked at this and began to realize that the, at least the first three or four terms had real numbers with not um, ridiculous error bars on them. And that, back then, they pretty much figured that they had I possibly identified 5,000 planets. And I just lost track what that number is right now. Well, and the Kepler project, you know. The Kepler project is the one that was on the dark side of the moon, literally. Yeah. Yeah, so they're counting actual planets that are in the habitable zone around all right. So you are getting much more precise numbers, but you say it's all physics, David, but when it comes to intergalactic space travel, you're talking about astrobiology, you're talking about astroanthropology, or you know, you're talking about all, you're talking about civil, complex civilizations, and so it is no longer just physics. And so the rest of those terms in the Drake equation, I don't think physicists have any idea what they are. Like, Probably oh, against civilization and whether they're going to survive and whether they're going to be able to see the thing about these numbers that are mind-boggling. Everything in the universe is mind-boggling numbers. The question is, can those people somehow travel faster than the speed of light? Right? Because they're not going to be able to get here without doing something remarkable with transportation that we do not understand. Um, so that to me is the big mystery. Yeah, well, they'll make a wormhole sooner or later, I'm sure. <laughs> and we'll be in the general vicinity, and we'll have to be demolished. They'll give us plenty of warning, I'm sure. Um, no, I think it's the. I, I think we do have, at least we have a working model. And to give you some idea of the scale, like why haven't we heard from ET if there's just billions and billions, yadas, zetas of planets? And it's because, well... Look at our own planet. It's about 
4.5 billion roughly years old. Okay? Um, life has been there more than half the time, but a technology that could, anyway, a technology that we can understand that could possibly communicate outside of this solar system, let alone to another star, is maybe 100 years old, possibly. And if you uh, go by the recent science fiction writers, the real signal to people on distant planets would be like from these powerful, like from these powerful particle physics machines, uh, very unnatural bursts of neutrinos, as opposed to a supernova burst of neutrinos. We were able to see the supernova from 1987 in our neutrino detectors here, uh, 11 neutrinos. But if there was a regular pulse of these guys, and some advanced civilization had much more, you know, advanced technology, possibly. But then, so, but you have to consider the bad, you know, the, the very narrow band that we are a technological, so to speak, online planet. 4.5 billion years, and we've only been kind of online techno technologically for, at last, for the last 100 at best. Now, we've already dodged one bullet. We could have annihilated ourselves in thermonuclear war. We have not done that yet. We have found a way to cooperate, at least on this level. But we're also facing an existential climate threat that threatens to maybe not wipe out human life, but seriously undermine a uh, civilization, particularly the kind of civilization that can support this kind of technology. So if you just put 100 years or 200 years, maybe that's the window. Maybe that's the average window for intelligent life to evolve, get online, and then before it annihilates itself. So those are very, very tiny windows of you know, little, little, little blips of time. So there might be billions of habitable planets, but they're only on for little blips of time in their evolution. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So anyway, that was that was my few slides to my class on why we possibly why we haven't heard from ET yet. And the possibility is strange how long it would take to develop advanced civilization. I mean, you're saying it's 3.8 billion years or whatever how much life has been on Earth, but there's no there's no reason that that's going to be a constant number across. Well, we have some reason to think that might be typical because unless, you know, physics and biology would be radically different on other planets, physics wouldn't. Biology might. You know, we have no idea, and you could ask Henry this, but I don't think we have any idea how, the, how DNA forms. We know that amino acids form, but nobody has been able to cre create the building blocks of life and a mechanism by which life perpetuates, which in our case is RNA and DNA. Now, is, that's a big question. Is DNA something that naturally evolves when you have a rocky, when, we, when you have a rocky planet with a, for, with a solar, with a sun that provides a certain spectrum of uh, radiation with water that can, I mean, that can, where, where a carbon-based life at least can evolve? Does DNA evolve? Was DNA just a fluke? Don't they think DNA was separate from cells and then found? Well, um, Richard Dawkins thinks a good, uh, good explanation could be that DNA had a non-organic origin, that it was kind of formed on some 
non-organic crystals. And at some point, just by accident, developed a self, uh, self-replicating mechanism. No, Professor Adnan Hussein. Uh-oh. Chairman of the Religion Department. I mean, this is a serious question. When you hear a, a physics professor talk that way, as, as a chairman of the religion department, aren't you tempted to do what I do and just say, God, just who cares? God did it. Let's watch uh, the Mets. But do you have a temptation to just say, well, what, just God did it? Absolutely, if it means I can just go watch the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> I get a little, yeah, these sorts of conversations, I know I have a hopelessly uh, rudimentary understanding of the science, so theology comes in real handy in those circumstances. But I actually, I, in, in all seriousness, I have felt that a lot of the cosmological theories that you hear about, I went and saw it, I, I, you know, I can't remember if it was, it was that's the Smithsonian, maybe, and, you know, at their um, planetarium, saw this um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, documentary and show, you know, about dark matter. And I thought, this doesn't add up. This is just, like, so much speculation. The actual basis for it seems to me very theological, like, you know, it's based on certain kinds of presumptions, and they're not working out, so we posit and theorize.